Season's greetings, pre-Happy New Year, and welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntra is here with a look back at 2015. And it's very interesting because certainly this last month, we have just been inundated with uh, the coverage of Star Wars The Force Awakens, uh, both uh, leading up to it and certainly the reaction afterwards. And as much as all the fans seem to enjoy the film, and I believe they did, because certainly the the uh, amount of people that I know that have already seen the movie not only once but several times have told me they really love the movie, there are just a ton of just nitpickers that uh, have been writing articles and uh, blogs and a lot of uh, clickbait sort of content about their little problems with the movie or the problems with the characters. And it really ticked me off so much that I was going to do a, a year in review uh, episode anyway, but I'm decided to do it in two parts. Uh, this first part is going to be nothing but happy stuff. And the reason why is 2015 was an amazing geek year and it was capped off by The Force Awakens. But let's not forget the amazing strides that have happened in television, film, streaming television, and the like. All these related media that are using comic book stories and characters as their source material, and they're all succeeding. We are in such a golden age of wonderful content that we don't even have to leave the house for. We can just sit down and click and watch incredible television, incredible film. And uh, I just thought we should reflect on some of the excellent people that I've had on in 2015 to talk about this subject. So um, we're going to have a uh, part two as well that might focus more on uh, comics and uh, the stories that have uh, since come out uh, about the issues of comics and everything. But uh, for part one, I'm only focusing on the positives. And uh, what you're going to hear from are uh, people like uh, Mark Miller talking about uh, his success with his movies so far and uh, his feelings on, on film versus television. Jeff Loeb, the head of Marvel Television, will be talking about the wonderful success not only on ABC with S.H.I.E.L.D. and Agent Carter, but the Netflix shows. Joe Casada, the creative officer of Marvel, will uh, spend a good bit of time talking about the Marvel films and television and their influence from the comics. Chris Robertson, the co-creator of iZombie. There's a creator that isn't involved in the day-to-day -day stuff of the television show, but uh, is uh, definitely got Rob Thomas's ear and uh, also enjoying the fact that iZombie has become one of the surprise hits of the CW. Mark Guggenheim, of course, uh, the showrunner of Arrow and uh, one of the big brains behind bringing all the DC heroes to the small screen. We're also going to hear from the actors and producers of Supergirl and, of course, we will check in with my buddy Brian Michael Bendis, talking about the success of Powers and uh, what's in store for Season 2. Once again, nothing but positives on today's Word Balloon, and I hope you enjoy that. Word Balloon, as always, is brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Uh, there are hours left of their year-end sale. It ends uh, tonight on New Year's Eve. But uh, you should uh, take advantage and save just in general. Uh, you can always find up to 42% off the standard retail price of a lot of great trade paperbacks, hardcovers, absolute editions, omnibus editions, essentials, great comics at great prices. One of the great books out this year, uh, Green Arrow by Jeff Lemire, uh, the entire run of uh, the uh, DC run with uh, Jeff and uh, Andrea Sorrentino. Uh, 
All of it is uh, collected in a big deluxe hardcover edition. Uh, it's 50% off. It's just $24.99 at InStockTrades.com. You can also reach back for great Mike Grell, Dan Jurgens, Green Arrow, uh, the original version of uh, Ollie, Blood of the Dragon, uh, featuring uh, a great team up with Shadow, among other stories. Uh, but uh, that is 50% off. It was uh, $18. It's only $8.99 at InStockTrades.com. You can get Revival. My buddies Tim Seeley and Mike Norton, uh, they're uh, rounding the turn and heading for home on uh, Revival. But uh, Volume 6, loyal, uh, Thy Loyal Sons and Daughters, is 50% off, $7.49. You can get the Hail Hydra trade paperback. That's uh, collecting Rick Remender's story uh, from Secret Wars, uh, The War Zones. And uh, it's uh, the story of uh, Cap's uh, adopted son uh, doing what he can uh, to uh, fight Hydra. off, $8.49. Jessica Jones, uh, trade paperback, Alias, Volume 4. We're going to talk to uh, Brian Bendis about his observations of Alias so far, uh, and also uh, Loeb and uh, Casada. But uh, here's the original run of uh, Brian Bendis and Mike Gatos. Volume 4 is 45% off, $13.74. Just a few of the great books you can find at InStockTrades.com. Check out all the great deals yourself. And don't forget, if uh, your orders are $50 or more, you receive free shipping at InStockTrades.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support this year. Really means a lot. Made uh, traveling to conventions uh, a lot easier and updating some of my equipment. And I hope you notice that. But uh, more improvements are coming in 2016. So uh, if you want to help the cause and uh, can afford it, if you go to wordballoon.com, there's a video there. And uh, it explains how to subscribe to Word Balloon via Patreon. I'm not asking for a lot. If you can spare a dollar a month, that's terrific. If you can spare a little more, that's great. If you want to make an individual donation to Word Balloon, terrific. Thank you very much for helping contribute to making Word Balloon what it is and what I hope it will be. And that is an excellent place where you hear conversation that you can't find anywhere else. And I think today's episode is a, is a perfect example of uh, the collection of voices of the comic world from 2015. So uh, thank you. And as always, I say, if you like the show, the best thing you can do for me is to recommend Word Balloon to a friend that hasn't heard of it and let them know, hey, this is a good podcast. You'll hear interesting people talking about the stuff we love. So thank you, as always, League of Word Balloon listeners. All right. Without further ado, let us uh, begin our uh, conversations. Um, I suppose we may as well start with uh, all the uh, great uh, product that we're getting on television uh, from the DC people. And uh, a great place to start is uh, showrunner Mark Guggenheim. I was always a fan of his uh, comic book writing, and it's uh, wonderful to check in with Mark and uh, talk about the excellent progress that has happened where it started with Arrow, we got The Flash, we've got iZombie going now, Legends of Tomorrow is about to premiere. At the time of this interview, uh, it was right before the announcement of Legends of Tomorrow as a series. So we talk about Brandon Routh as the Atom, and uh, we're talking about him and his appearances on Arrow and in The Flash. Um, didn't know that, uh, I mean, we, we kind of suspected that something was brewing with all these heroes being introduced on both shows, that it had to be going somewhere. And certainly Legends of Tomorrow is a very exciting project that we all look forward to in 2016. But it's great to get the, uh, the philosophy uh, behind the DC shows from uh, the various producers and showrunners. Let's start with Mark Guggenheim, now on Word Balloon. 
Does the DC universe have the potential of being like a CSI or a law and order for, for the CW? Because again, I think if the great thing is these shows are connected, but obviously do stand on their own. And I think what we've seen in the flash really is great. And it's great that, you know, you have things like the crossover where you, where you can dip back and forth. And these guys are, you know, kind of in the background of each other's stories, but by the same token, you know, stand alone. And uh, certainly, you know, all everyone is hoping that uh, things follow through with uh, with the Atom as well. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, it, it's it's a great thing. What, you know, one of the things we always say is that all of these shows need to be different. Um, you know, that Flash is very different from Arrow, and if we were to do a third show, it, that would have to be, you know, different from both Arrow and Flash. Um, and, and that's the fun, you know, the fun thing to, you know, get to think about and fantasize about. Um, you know, I... You know, I'm a sucker for uh, spinoffs, and I'm a sucker for shows like, you know, Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, to date myself, where you sort of have sure. these two, essentially these two superheroes um, operating uh, in the same universe. Uh, it's occasionally crossing over with each other. What would happen on one show would get reflected on the other. Um, I, I get, you know, I get excited thinking that we're doing sort of the modern day version of that. I agreed. Um, is have especially now that you know on the movie side things are really ramping up. Have there been characters that they've said no to you guys? Since you know, and you can tell me or not, but in just even in general, you know, are there areas that you've wanted to get into or characters you've wanted to introduce, and they're like, "Yeah, sorry, we're making a movie about that or whatever." Um, you know, it's it's more even more complicated than just the movie side of it. You know, DC is you know they're developing a whole host of TV projects as well. So right. I mean, it's a very rich universe. That's and true. A lot of characters at the same time. You know, I think we recognize that uh, we we certainly can't lay claim to all of them. Um, and also that said, there's there's certain characters that just don't you know necessarily work in the in the quote unquote grounded reality of Arrow. Um, you know, and, and may not work on Flash for a variety of different reasons. So part of it's, you know, uh, just a discussion, quite frankly, that we have with DC where it's trying to balance the tones of the show, uh, our creative trajectories on the show, with also the realities that some of these characters may be spoken for in either television or other mediums. Well, congratulations on both uh, what you guys have done so far with the Atom uh, at this season on Arrow and also uh, Raza Ghul introducing him uh, I, I think it is really great and, and appreciated the nods to those classic Roz stories. Uh, you know, like, of course, and, and all the women love the shirtless uh, fight between us. <laughs> <and Roz. laughs> well, you know, it's you funny. Know. I, think, I think we get a lot of credit uh, for that when we are really just uh, homaging, uh, you know, the O'Neill Adams uh, yep. Batman run. Sure, man. Absolutely. No, that's, that's great stuff. And it's just great that... Um, you know, because obviously it happened on Smallville, too, where it seemed like Ollie kind of took that Batman role. And uh, I, I really think, obviously, you guys have evolved beyond that as well, clearly, in terms of what you've been able to do. do you, is there a difference in environment now that um, the way that you guys have been able to spin off, can you compare it to that Smallville era? I, I don't remember if you wrote for Smallville at all. Uh, I didn't actually. Um, you know, I think it's it's similar to um, it's similar to Smallville, I guess, in the sense that our universe keeps expanding as Smallville mm -hmm. did. Um, you know, certainly, you know, the Arrow, uh, you know, Green Arrow as a as a character. It's always been hard, and, and we've never gone out of our way to deny it. Uh, it's always been hard to say that Green Arrow wasn't 
a an homage, uh, if you will, to Batman. You know, they're both you know billionaire protagonists sure. who are unpowered. Um, I mean, even uh, you know, even Green Arrow had a Green Arrow mobile and an yes. Arrow cave. And you know, one of my favorite moments of the Kevin Smith run on Green Arrow was Batman being in the Arrow cave and saying to uh, Green Arrow, "Did you ever have an original thought?" <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> but you're right. Even in the Golden Age creation, I, I'm I'm sure that was what was running in their minds and stuff. Yeah, you know, Batman's doing great. We need another character like that. And certainly there were a ton of those in the Golden Age, not just coming out of DC and National, but all the other competing publishers as as well. Um, man, the Flash. I got to tell you, I and I and I really Arrow is a trip. It is so great that the Flash works as well. And works on this different level. And I appreciate, I, I read in a recent interview you did, and you talked about how initially the plan really was, especially with Arrow, no superpowers. Let's keep it, you know, mm-hmm. street-level vigilantism and everything. And uh, I, I think, you know, having Arrow now, or rather having Flash, you've got, you get into science. You teased as well in the same interview that with Vixen, you're getting into magic. Right. So exactly. You, yeah. So talk about that evolution and, and the I mean, that that really does open up the possibilities then for the, the all of the aspects of the D.C. universe playing out in live television. It's true. I mean, I think the one the one area we haven't touched on is, is extraterrestrials just yet. And, uh-huh. um, you know, it, certainly what I said about each show should feel different and, and bring something new to the table. That that goes for the Vixen series as well. Um, you know, with, with Vixen, we're getting a chance to play around a bit with magic, um, which is, is interesting because it's, you know, you, as you'll see in the Vixen series, uh, it, the the reaction to the character of Vixen and what she can do is is different on the part of Oliver and Barry than what you might expect. Uh, actually, it's it's Oliver who's a little quicker to buy into the possibility of Vixen's powers than Barry is because Barry can't square it with science. But <laughs> Oliver, um, you know, as he said, as he says in a future episode of Arrow, uh, basically says, you know, I've I've been around the world and I've kind of seen some stuff. And, um, you know, I've got a pretty broad view of, of what's possible. Um, but having, having magic become part of our, our Arrowverse is, uh, it's, it's a nice thing because, again, it's a, it's a color that uh, adds, you know, more to our tool chest. But at the same time, uh, it, magic feels like it can fit within the world of Arrow um, in, a, in a quite easier way than, you know, than supernatural science does. You know, and also congratulations on casting because, God, you know, Stephen and Grant are doing great. I'm really happy for Brandon Routh because I think he got kind of a, a, a lousy deal in the Superman movie. A lot of things that were wrong with it weren't his fault. And I think between – and yeah, and I think between you guys and also even his spin on Chuck really kind of showed – it's like – and even Scott Pilgrim and stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah, you know, there's some talent here, man. So really that's great that you guys have given him a platform and potentially even more if uh, things keep going the way they are. Brandon is a phenomenal talent, and he's a total star. And I, you know, I, I've always felt that he had more in him than Superman, and he's been proving that with Chuck and Scott Pilgrim, and and I think on Arrow, and um, you know, in in these future episodes, as as he continues his path towards becoming Adam, 
uh, I think you'll really get to see uh, the the length and breadth of Brandon's talents, which which are prodigious. Excellent. And uh, on the flash side, man, and I, you know, Walking Dead has this same problem too, where you know us comic fans all cross our arms and like, well, we know where what's going with the Reverse Flash and everything, and you guys have kept us guessing and even the reveals that we've gotten so far and just in case anyone isn't caught up i'll leave it at that i'm still not convinced we know everything and um that's great because it excites us that we you know all bets are off we're not sure about what's going on so well, I tell you, I, I, my, I tip my hat to uh, Greg, Andrew, and, and Jeff every time I watch an episode of Flash. Um, you know, I'm, I've, I watch as an audience member. I'm along okay. the ride, and I, I'm totally uh, entranced by what they've come up with, even though they have spoiled for me uh, sort of <laughs> some, you know, future events. Um, I, I still get a chance to enjoy the, the show, um, even though I'm not always surprised because I have some inside knowledge. But uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful show, and, and those guys are working incredibly hard on it certainly one of the big hits of 2015 and it's only uh you know god i don't even think we've reached 10 episodes yet but uh, it started in october supergirl on cbs unbelievable hit great to see uh that uh, everyone that has been behind arrow and the flash has moved on to this third show and even though it's on a competing network uh there's a kinship in spirit and uh, writing and what we are seeing on supergirl happen and uh, i was very pleased to be part of the October press conference right before the October 26th premiere of Supergirl and uh, get to hear right from the horse's mouths uh, showrunners Greg Berlanti, Andrew Kreisberg, Ali Adler, and Supergirl herself, Melissa Benoist. Uh, they all fe- faced the press, answered a bunch, bunch of questions, and made us all feel good about uh, what we were getting on Supergirl. At the time, uh, we had only seen the pilot, but the pilot blew us away. And uh, you can tell that uh, they addressed a lot of the concerns and issues that I think uh, a lot of uh, the fans and press had about the depiction of Supergirl and also just this uh, uh, gender equality and and uh, how gender is being treated in the superhero world. And uh, you get the answers. So uh, here's a portion of that press conference right now on Word Balloon. Good afternoon. Um, this is for the producers. Um, I'm curious, you know, when we talked at Comic-Con, you talked about there was going to be a big bad this season, but then there's been some, you know, rumors about other villains that are coming up. So I was wondering if you could address the what a villain, what villain Supergirl is going to face this year. Uh, hi, this is Andrew. Um, you know, we always have a traditional big bad for the season, um, the sort of uber villain who is, uh, you know, setting the, 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 the plans in motion. But just like with uh, the other shows, you know, there's always, there'll be uh, also villains of the week. The pilot sort of sets up the idea that there was a uh, alien prison from Krypton that crash-landed on Earth, and all of the prisoners escaped. So we're going to be meeting some of those alien villains. There will also be some human villains. Um, we've announced that the Toy Man uh, is going to be appearing on the show. But additionally, we have some uh, uh, major Kryptonian villains who are going to be the, uh, the, uh, um, the big bads of the season. Okay, just following up on that, not everybody's going to have kryptonite. So how are you going to make Supergirl vulnerable so that each week we're in suspense to see if she's going to survive? I think it's a little bit of a, um, a, a, a sort of collective, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, mistake that, that that kryptonite is the only thing that can hurt a Kryptonian. 
um, you know, uh, in the comic books and on certain, you know, especially other adaptations, uh, you know, specifically the Superman animated series, you see that he can, he, Superman himself can be hurt by a lot more than kryptonite. So, you know, on the show, we've shown that, you know, fighting certain aliens or uh, she fights Livewire, who has uh, electrical powers, but she has enough electricity to stop Supergirl's heart. Um, you know, there are other things on the show that are, that, you know, are beyond just kryptonite because, you know, again, like on the old series, you know, unless you had a rock of kryptonite, it was, uh, it was pretty much lights out for the bad guys. And, and we certainly don't want that. And we always want to feel like our hero is in jeopardy. Terrific. Thank you so much. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Henry Hanks. Your line is open. Hey guys. Thanks for talking to us today. Um, uh, Ali kind of, uh, touched on this at New York Comic Con and I um, uh, wanted to hear what Melissa and the rest of you guys have to say about um, how the show kind of touches on the whole gender question and kind of moves past it to being a, a good comic book action show and also uh, Melissa what uh, what do you think about balancing um, being a role model to young women and also you know being a good action show and not just making it uh, about that well um I guess how I approach it every day is that as long as Kara and Supergirl are enjoying themselves and finding the joy in being a hero and the joy in using her powers finally after so long, that everything kind of stems from that. And I, I, I just always keep in mind her bravery and her hope and her positivity and her strength, and I think that... It'll be hard for girls not to look up to that. What, one thing I would add, this is Greg. Um, yes. One thing I would add in terms of uh, just, that Melissa can't say about herself uh, but as, as a role model is now having worked with her for quite a few months, I think we all agree that, that, if, that uh, if there's any little girls out there, like we would want them all to grow up to be just like Melissa Benoist. <laughs> um, you know, she is, she, I, 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 I mean, it's, she's just such a delight to work with from top to bottom. And this, this kind of show is so incredibly grueling from performance to stunts to training, uh, when you're not and learning lines, when you're not doing those things. Uh, and, and we, 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 we can't, uh, create a show like this without someone like her carrying the whole show on her back. And, uh, She's the, the, you know, exemplifies grace under pressure. And so I, I think in some ways, and, and I don't, um, you know, uh, I mean this seriously, like as we've moved ahead in writing Kara, you know, we've, we've tried to sort of capture what we think is just what's so special about Melissa, you know, and uh, in, the, in the back, truly, as we move forward in, in the back half of the year. Uh, but she, she, she just really personifies a lot of the, um, the qualities of the character, and it, it gives us something to, to write toward every day. I'm blushing, Greg. <laughs> well, thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Rob Owen. Your line is open. Hi. I guess this question is probably uh, mostly for the producers. Every time you start a show, you sort of envision one thing, and then the first year is always a, a shakedown cruise where you're finding what works best, what doesn't work as well, things that surprise you. And I'm wondering, you're much further along now than when we spoke to you at Press Tour this summer, and I'm wondering what surprises have there been along the way as you've been crafting this first season story, um, if you can give some sense of what you didn't expect that has, has come out of um, the writer's room, seeing dailies, that sort of thing. 
I think uh, in a lot of ways this kind of reminds us of Flash in that the show feels sort of fully formed a lot sooner than we were probably expecting, especially when it comes to the relationships amongst the characters. Um, you know, you always, you know, when you do a pilot, you come up with all of these characters and you cast them and you hope the cast is going to gel and that you're going to find interesting uh, scenes that can come out of the character work. And I think, you know, what, you know, with Melissa as the standard bearer and then watching her scenes with and watching her scenes with Kyler and watching her scenes with Makad and all of her scenes with Laura Benanti and David and, and Jeremy. It's just been, um, it's just been a, a lot easier to sort of come up with things because, you know, we've seen the evidence of, of how much of the, uh, the character work on the show, um, you know, is really engaging for us. I think probably the biggest surprise, which sort of happened again on Flash, and it's happened on this, is just really how hard it is to pull these shows off week in and week out with the visual effects and the stunts and the hyper amount of planning that goes into making them. You sort of you think like, oh, well, we pulled off Arrow, so we'll be able to do Flash, and then Flash turned out to be a lot bigger, and then this has turned out to be a lot bigger than Flash. So, you know, every one of these shows has had a very steep uh, steep and unforgiving learning curve, but uh, you know, we've been, we've been incredibly proud and excited by the results and, and hopefully um, everyone out there will be too. And I would Thank just you. add, this is Allie, I would just add that what we've also found is that all the attributes that Melissa has, that Supergirl has, are you know, strength and courage and hope and positivity. They're very genderless. And so ultimately we hope to inspire uh, men and women out there. Thank you. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Emily Yar. I have a question about Calista Flockhart's um, The Girl speech, a Supergirl versus Superwoman. Um, I was just wondering if someone could sort of talk about where that came from and if you anticipated any backlash about the girl name and sort of wanted to address it up front. Yeah, um, Allie can speak to this as well, but we uh, even that, that, that speech was in the original pitch for the show. Um, you know, one thing I, I've found in doing this is sometimes the temptation is there um, by executives to, to alter things, you know, that are, are, I think, sort of just part of the DNA of, of, what, the, of what the comic wo- was so great about the comic book. And so we really wanted to be protective of the name of the show. Uh, and, and we sort of wanted to, I think, have a conversation with our characters that we believe that the audience would be having and that, you know, others might be having in terms of saying, well, she's an adult woman. Why isn't it called Superwoman? Uh, and so, uh, and that that was the origin of it, and it was it was pretty much kind of always uh, always in existence. Allie, you said it perfectly. So there you go. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Greg Staffa. Your line is open. Thanks for taking our calls today. Um, I absolutely love the pilot. Uh, my first question is for Melissa. The the female empowerment is a common theme throughout the promoting of the show to the pilot itself. Yet. When thinking of shows like The Flash and Arrow, we don't talk about male empowerment of, you know, wanting to be The Flash. Is that something that you find is a burden at times or an asset? Um, And do you have a superhero of your own in real life? And who might that be? Well, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say that I think of it as a burden. I I definitely think it's an asset. And I, I honestly, I don't really tend to focus on it too much because I just want people to have fun watching the show and to really enjoy watching Kara's journey as much as I'm enjoying playing it. Um, and I, it, I, it truly, to me, does not matter that she's a girl because she kicks some serious ass. 
and in my day-to-day life, I mean, I come from a family of where the women really are the majority. We outnumber the men in my family by far, and uh, all the women in my family are superheroes of mine. Um, growing up, Judy Garland was a huge superhero for me. Um, Rosemary Clooney. Uh, I watched a lot of old movies with my grandma. Thank you. And for the producers, uh, is there an overall kind of pivotal moment where you looked at Melissa and said, wow, we just nailed it? Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm sure you felt that throughout the cast, you know, casting her, but was there a moment on in the pilot or something watching it play back and you just were like, wow, we did it? I mean, we knew that she was our Supergirl and our Kara from the very start. Um, I don't think any of us ever questioned that. Um, but that first time she put on the outfit for us, uh, we were on, at Warner Brothers in the costume department, and Colleen um, uh, Atwood, uh, you know, who designed the costume, you know, they, they came out. And, you know, uh, you know, for all the good intentions and all the good planning and all the, uh, you know, talented people in the world, you know, you could sometimes misfire on these things, especially when it's based on a comic book. But when Melissa stepped out wearing that outfit, it was like, oh, this is going to work. And, you know, none of us had any doubts from that point forward that, you know, that, that I mean, we knew, we'd ha- we knew we had the right girl, but we, we, after that we knew that we had something really, really, really special. Oh, well, thank you. I absolutely love the pilot. Oh, thank you so much. We really thank appreciate that. Thank you. Our next question or comment comes from the line of Dalton Tavlin. Your line is open. Hi, thank you guys. Um, first, I want to say I, I really love the pilot, um, Melissa. Um, I saw your act, your representation of Supergirl was really accurate to um, to that of the comics. Um, I was just wondering, did you have to read any Supergirl comics to prepare yourself for the role, or do you feel as if your your personality just falls in line with that of Supergirl? I read some of them. Uh, I read some of the New Fifty Two. Um, but also what I love about what um, Allie, Greg, and Andrew, and Sarah have created is that I, I truly feel like we are making the modern 2015 version of her. And so I did want to kind of, I wanted to know the world, but I wanted to kind of separate myself from it a little bit to, to really make her my own. Okay, thank you. Um, um, Greg, um... Supergirl in the pilot, she seemed to have a lot of control and know a lot about her powers and her abilities. Um, at, the, at this moment, does she know the full extent of her powers, or is that something that's going to come along throughout the show as she learns more and she has the face? Yeah, I, I, my, uh, I think our collective gut is that she's very much just at the beginning of her journey. Um, and so even, even the stuff that she thinks she knows uh, you know, will, will come into question, not just about her powers, but also about her backstory and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, and where she comes from. And, and, uh, so there'll be, uh, I think, uh, there's always a bit of mystery around, around that, uh, her origins and, and also just around what her, what the, her capacities are. Next up, Chris Robertson, uh, a good friend of word balloons for years. And, uh, man, I'll tell you, I zombie, his excellent book with Mike Allred, uh, knocked us out as a comic book. I didn't expect it to uh, be a, a television show. Maybe others did. Um, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, once Kirkman and The Walking Dead happens, zombie is the flavor of uh, one of the flavors of, of uh, genre fiction that is certainly getting uh, a lot of exposure. Max Brooks, of course, is right there at the beginning, too, with World War Z. 
But uh, it's uh, great to see that iZombie was able to very quickly uh, be distinct from those kind of zombie ideas and uh, is really one of the more fun shows that is on the CW. And I was thrilled that it uh, not only did so well in season one, but uh, was guaranteed season two. I certainly hope it continues. And unlike some of the other guests that we've got on Word Balloon today, um, Chris is uh, really more of a viewer as much as we are. They took his and Mike's original ideas, spun it in a different way. Rob Thomas, of course, the wonderful Veronica Mars creator, putting his stamp on the show. Uh, we also heard in recent uh, press news, I'm sure you're aware of it, Kristen Bell will be making her uh, appearance on iZombie in 2016. So we're all looking forward to this uh, mini Veronica Mars reunion between uh, Thomas and Kristen. I love the film as much as I love the series. So uh, let's get uh, Chris's point of view on the creation of iZombie and also uh, his uh, thoughts on the TV show on this portion of Word Balloon. The co-creator of the CW's excellent iZombie, it's Chris Robertson, everybody. Not to be pedantic, I'm the co-creator of the comic upon which the show developed by Rob Thomas and Diane Margero Wright developed. I appreciate the distinction, and it is because of that unique position that that will be part of my questioning, because I want to hear about the origin of the comic, and also, you know, everything that's progressed since then. But, uh, yeah, so at the genesis of iZombie, you and Mike Allred... Mm -hmm. um, who came to who first, and how did this this initial comic book happen? Um, well, actually, I just recently revisited all the original emails and proposal documents and whatnot because I was preparing the afterword for the omnibus that's coming out later this year. Um, and I hadn't reread all of iZombie since it ended. Like, I'd read, of course, I wrote it. I know what was in it. But I had never sat down and read the whole thing at once. Um, and there was lots of it I'd forgotten. Um, But the genesis of it was that I had been doing a bit of work uh, for Vertigo writing spinoffs of Bill Willingham's fables. Um, I'd done a Cinderella miniseries that uh, was well-received, ended up on the New York Times bestseller list briefly. And then um, uh, was looking for more work. So was asking, uh, you know, sending proposals and pitches to Shelley Bond over at Vertigo. And she basically just she didn't like any of them. None of them were landing. Um, and so in a kind of last-ditch attempt to keep that door open, I asked whether there were any moribund DC trademarks that they were trying to keep alive. Because one of the, if you're familiar with Vertigo Comics, one of the things that they did for the longest time was they would take old series titles and put new series under them in order to keep maintain those trademarks. Dead Man was a very popular DC mainstream book. Vertigo's Dead Man was a very different concept than well, Sandman. Uh, Sandman's you know, another great losers, example. Obviously, I mean, you're right. The Losers, another one. Yeah, absolutely. Man. Shade the Changing Man. There were many of them. There you go. So I got a list of titles, uh, like five or six things. Um, uh, this was right. This was six years ago. God, it's been that long, really. Yeah, it was like wow. April of 2009. Holy cow! March of 2009, so it was right in there. And um, in the list was Gravedigger, which in the, um, in the late 1970s was a strip that ran in, I think, Minute War or something. It was about a World War II okay. uh, African-American soldier behind enemy lines. Uh, but the brief I was given was, you know, just ignore anything that came before to see if you can come up with new concepts to fit. And so uh, my kid at that point was in preschool. Um, she's, now going, she's now in the sixth grade. 
but she was in preschool at the time. And on the drive, I was just like, well, what would be interesting about a grave digger? What, what, what kind of story? Because it couldn't just be someone that digs graves. Like, why are they digging graves? Are they burying something, or are they trying to get at something that's already buried? And that's when I hit upon, well, maybe it's a zombie. Maybe it's a zombie wanting to get it. Maybe a zombie doesn't want to hurt anybody. Maybe a zombie just wants to get brains. Um, and so they would be digging up graves to get the fresh ones. Um, and then very quickly, like I think by the time I got back from dropping, from picking the kid up from school, typed up a quick paragraph um, and sent it off. And it took a couple of weeks for Shelly to get around to looking at it. And then when she looked at it, she showed it to Karen Berger, who was then the executive editor at Vertigo, and called me back and said they were both really interested. They thought that this had potential, and could I work up a proposal? And I was leaving the next day for a convention, and so like on the flight to Mississippi, the Gulfport, Mississippi, I worked out the bare bones of everything that was in the comic, like all the supporting cast and the explanation for everything, everything worked. Typed it up at the show because it was kind of slow, and uh, mailed it when I got back. And that was... Yeah, so I think April of 20, 2009, and we had a contract in place within like two or three weeks. It was really, really fast. Wow. Uh, but the wrinkle was that when um, uh, Shelley looked at the, the proposal and liked it, and it, had a, it, it was the tone of the thing that it eventually took, she asked me what I had in mind for the art, like what kind of art style. And I said, well, I always like that kind of like clean line, kind of cartoony style. People like, and I'll rattle off like Darwin Cook or Jay Bone, or um, I, there were a couple other names that like, the, looking back at the emails, like David Hahn was in there. I talked about Cliff Chang. Um, sure. And she said, well, what about somebody like Mike Allred? And I just assumed she meant like a starving art student who drew something like Right, Mike a Allred. type rather than the Mike Allred. And, yeah. You know, co- for comic people, that's a big name. Yeah. A big, big uh, fish. Up to that point, best known for uh, Mad Men. Um, yeah, the, the character Mad Men. Yeah, the from, Mad Men from uh, – the cartoons, not the ad executives of AMC. Right, right, right. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm brokering this. I know podcast listeners are like, yeah, we know, dummy. And it's like, you know, just in case, because we're, we're talking to a live audience as well, that just is here clarify. as much as television fans as they are, you know, comic fans. So, so um, Mike wanted to do it. Uh, Mike liked the idea, but Mike didn't want to do uh, a work-for-hire book that DC would own. And so the solution was, how about we just come up with a new title and we own it? Um, and so it was actually Vertigo. Shelley Bond suggested the title, I, Zombie. And I was like, yeah, that sounds fine to me. Oh, wow. Um, and we were off to the races. And that's how it happened. That's amazing. And, I'm, and I honestly, what, what blows my mind is because Kirkman and, and Tony Moore, who created The Walking Dead, co-created it initially, and Charlie Allard has you know, su- successively done the comic, the success of it is well on, on TV – uh, you you would think that there wouldn't be room for that many more successful zombie properties out there. And again, with the help of a writer such as yourself and an artist like Mike Allred, I'm assuming, obviously, kind of you know help that initial. Oh wow, okay, these well, guys. Are doing you know, it. I mean, the thing is, it, there wasn't I think fatigue, but like I was a huge fan of Walking Dead at that point. Sure. Like, um, and I felt like that. Uh, uh, that Kirkman and Tony had pretty much cornered the market on the post-apocalyptic zombie scenario. I mean, they were True. they were exploring all the different things you could do, um, and so that's one of the reasons why I was like, "But you know, it's fairly recent, just in the last couple of decades, that the zombie 
became linked so inexorably to that subgenre, to the post-apocalyptic yes, the end of the world kind of scenario. Because even Romero's Night of the Living Dead is not a post-apocalyptic thing. All. It's just a bad night that happens for these people <laughs> in Pittsburgh, in yeah. black and white. Yeah, um, and it's in the public domain. If you want to do anything, which is amazing. Uh, they didn't copyright it correctly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that nuts? The original so, Night of the Living Dead is public domain movie. So I was like, why don't we? Why don't you? Why can't? Why couldn't you do with the zombie as a monster the same thing that people have done with vampires? Aren't stuck in Eastern Europe in the well, yeah the Bela Lugosi archetype? Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, wow. you know, werewolf stories don't have to be set in the forties in you know whatever. Like, so why not do a zombie story that is happening right now? In a way that doesn't completely destroy society. So, um, yeah. So that was my suggestion. And also to like make the zombie a likable protagonist. Uh, I approached it as a romantic comedy the whole time. Was my thing. Um, and I, I when we announced it at San Diego that year. Was yeah, what was the, that initial reaction? Yeah. Um, well, I think there was a little bit of like, oh, zombie, you know, but sure. because Walking Dead pretty Again, much was cornering the market. On. Right, and then really in typical comic book fashion, if something succeeds, suddenly the, really the comic market gets flooded with yeah. poor imitations, and as you say, poor imitations of either end-of-the-world scenarios yeah. or just that grotesque kind yeah, of yeah. Yeah. aspect of the zombie. And so, like, on the panel, I described it as a romantic comedy uh, starring the universal monsters types, but, like, as modern-day counterculture hipsters and uh, after the panel Karen came up to me and she said you're great you know you, you can be on any panels anytime never describe this book as, like that again like never say it's a romantic comedy ever ever again and I was like alright they wanted it to be gritty mature reader stuff interesting yeah because in my head it was always an all ages book like sure um, I was writing something that I could hand to you know any kid so long as that kid was okay with the idea of the main character having to eat brains. Having to eat brains. <laughs> which I was fine with. I really, I didn't, I really, people would ask me when I would do signings early on. They'd be like, is this okay for my, my eight-year-old? They'd be like, yeah, totally. Like, oh, but unless your eight-year-old is bothered by cannibalism, <laughs> in which case probably not. <laughs> but. Well, and I also, I, and, and I'm sure one of the reasons why the show has appeal as well is it has a female lead, yeah. and the comic has a female yeah. lead. So, so real, you know, obviously conscious choice to make it a woman uh, yeah. hero, heroine or hero, as opposed to your your typical white, you know, hero. Well, even like, pale skin zombie hero. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I happily wear the the badge of social justice warrior. And so, in putting that book together, first, it being a female lead was that was without question. That was okay. going to be it. But more than that, like I wanted to make sure that the cast surrounding her, it wasn't that thing where like, oh, it's, just, it's a strong, plucky female lead and then like six middle-aged white guys. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I didn't realize until the book wrapped up, uh, we ran 28 issues all together, I didn't realize that I'd forgotten to put a straight white man in that book because um, there aren't any. Crazy. Um, there's one that I thought was for like a, like a full two issues until I realized he was gay. It, is, uh, does that happen a lot where you're writing a character and you suddenly, oh, wait a minute, this yeah. is a different person? Yeah. Because the character kind of takes over the writing. Yeah. And so it was, it, you know, I hate that cliche that, like, you know, the characters write themselves, but it kind of is part of your brain that you're not directly in connect with. And I find that characters' personalities kind of come out, like, as I'm writing the dialogue. And I'm like, oh, that's who this is. Yeah. So, and as you say, you wrote, you wrote the book for, for 28 issues. Did you have – because Vertigo, especially even then still, had that kind of 
60 to 80 or even 90, even 100 issue kind of model, but there was kind of going to be an end to it and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so it was already, we had an end in mind. Um, But, you know, it kind of came out at a point where the sales were pretty, you know, tepid across the board for a lot of different projects. And um, it just, I saw the writing on the wall fairly early because I would see the sales numbers. And so for at least a year out, like I, so I started I like m- moving the pieces in the direction of the ending um, at least 10 issues out. And so I was shooting for 30. I was like, if we can get to 30, we'll be fine. And then the word came down that we had to issue 28. And I was like, all right. I had to couple, cut a couple of subplots down, but I, okay. could, I could get there. So we got to the end we wanted to get to. That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. When does the omnibus come out? Uh, I think December. Oh, fantastic. Think, yeah. And what kind of uh, special bonus feature, supplemental features? There's an there? exciting afterward from me. Excellent. Um, <laughs> Thrilling. And, yeah. And uh, um, Conceptual art? Anything? Lots of sketchbook stuff, yeah. Like, okay. a, like a really healthy sketchbook section from, from All Red. Excellent. Yeah. So when did, when did the TV side suddenly, like, you know, when did you hear, when did you first hear that, hey, well, something's brewing? There had been interest for a while um, uh, from various quarters about TV and movie stuff because the basic idea of it like a zombie that has to eat brains to, to pass for human and then inherits the memories of the dead person and has to you know go finish their business and solve their murders um, is a pretty it's a pretty good idea sure. I think um, and the first I heard about the, the version that finally made it past all the hurdles and onto the air was I guess around September of 2013, so a, a, more than a year after the book wrapped up, I got a call from Jeff Johns, who is, uh, was then and is now the chief creative officer over at DC Entertainment, that uh, Rob Thomas had been attached to like develop a pilot. But I'm pretty jaded, because I've been down this road on other projects before. Sure. We're like, ooh, some big name is attached to a thing, and then nothing happens. Absolutely. So I was like, whatever. That's cool. That's, that, that sounds good. Let me know. Keep me posted. It was basically that was my answer. Like, keep me posted. And then a couple months later, I was like, well, you know, they were going to be shooting the pilot. There's a script that was run, written. I was like, all right, let me know. Keep me posted. It would be good if that happened. And then up to the point where, like, I was on the set with my wife and kid uh, while they were filming the pilot in Vancouver in April of 2014. I was like, yeah, that's cool. Keep me posted. It would be nice if this happened. Because even then, I didn't really think. That. Sure. Um, it was nice because we, we ended up on the set. For those of you that know the show, like uh, um, Raul, who plays Dr. Ravi, the, the medical examiner, uh, it was his first day on set. Um, he, they had hired him on the basis of a videotaped audition. So they'd never even met him in person. Oh, wow. So he, wow. F- he flew over from London. He'd done a little bit of work in the U.K., but not a lot. So he was pretty, pretty fresh and new. And uh, so his first day on the set... My wife and I are there. Um, uh, there's a, a, a guy from DC Entertainment. Pornsack was there. Pornsack Pen Show. Uh, and they had him do something like, I think, 12 pages of script. Uh, all they of shot it shot 12 pages of yeah, script? Yeah. All wow. of it medical jargon. Holy like, cow. All, like crazy, crazy medical jargon stuff. Wow. That's really, that's pretty intense. And, uh, man, he nailed it. Like, he was so fantastic. And Alice and I were both like, this guy's great. I mean, he's going to, uh, Rose McIver's fantastic, too. 
Uh, and Malcolm was there for just a little bit, the guy who plays the, the police detective. But it was mostly the Raul show. And just sitting there watching, like, wow, this guy's great. And then in between takes, we'd get together and talk. And it, it turns out he was a big comics fan. And so he's like, what is Alan Moore really like? I'm like, he's really nice. Like, <laughs> um, you'd like him. Very cool. Creator of Watchmen for, yeah. for, again, the TV crowd that may not know. Uh, that's awesome, man. Well, and again, as you point out, uh, Rob Thomason, and forgive me, I forget the... the Diane Majero. Diane right? Majero. They are the showrunners mm-hmm. and kind of the co-creators of the television version of it. So it is different than active comic creators like a Robert Kirkman on Walking Dead, Brian Bendis currently uh, with his uh, television show Powers on Sony PlayStation, you know, even... Uh, Jeff Loeb, who's done a lot of work for Marvel as the head of Marvel Television, is an active producer on Agents of Shield. So, uh, and and yeah, so you know they've taken the basic concept, but they make changes and yeah. things. And at what point were you aware of of their? Like, did you see the the pilot script? Oh, yeah, before, yeah. yeah. Before the, the, the phrase is, I that, used... a, is that is that uh, a courtesy or is it? Bec- I mean, like, what kind of? Not power, but you know what I'm saying, influence or yeah, whatever. Yeah, kind of do weight you, do I have to throw out? Yeah. I mean, yeah. legally and contractually, none. Okay. Um, because, like, I couldn't prevent them from doing anything because they have per- – they, they purchased the, the right to do it. They licensed the right to do the show. Um, the, the showrunners licensed yeah. the right well, to do – Well, CW. Or, I mean, or, or, yeah, CW. CW and the, but the way it happened was DC Entertainment, Warner Television – well, Warner Television really handed the, the comic to Rob Thomas, like brought him in for a meeting, handed him the first volume of the Eye Zombie comic, and said, "We would like you to develop this for a TV show." Um, and so he went off and read it, and he took from the, the things that he thought would make a good TV show, mm-hmm. um, and then built a new thing around it. And okay. in in comic terms, this I'm often asked, like, "How do I feel about the fact they made so many creative changes?" But like. There is a long, proud tradition of people taking the title and basic concept of a thing and then making a new thing underneath it. Sure. Um, their show is the Barry Allen to our Jay Garrick. You know, it's the okay. same title and the same yeah. basic idea, and they made something that I think is more fit to survive as a TV show than my thing would have been. Okay. Um, but yeah, so they sent me the pilot script, and I read it, and I was like, this is pretty smart. This is good. Um, and then we saw rough cuts of the pilot really early on. And in the summer before it aired, we saw the first four episodes. In the fall, we saw the rough cuts of the first four episodes. And my... It was my, a spring show, as I remember, too. It, it came in yeah, season. Yeah, it was a, it was a mid-season... Like March or whatever. Mid-season yeah. replacement yeah, 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 yeah. episodes. And my note, um, other than like, this is fantastic, the cast is great, you're all doing a fantastic job, is it was a lettering note. Uh, it was a what? Letter? It was a lettering note. Oh, a lettering note. Because they were using comic fonts for all the titles. And the... Uh, at the in between every commercial break, they'll come back with like a kind of comic panel thing, and also the opening titles. And for people that know comics lettering, um, <clears throat> you know the capital I with the bars at the top and the bottom; those never appear in the middle of a word in a comic. Like that's it's again it's verboten. They're only for the beginning of a word or for the first person pronoun. And anytime you comics people see that, it's just a red flag that this person is they're not. They're not doing. They're not. They don't understand how comic lettering works. Okay, interesting. So when I saw the pilot, it was like that throughout. 
like every instance, every after every commercial break, the opening credits, all. And so I you wrote. Watch those. All right, that's interesting. They, so I wrote this impassioned email to Diane Ruggiero with tons of links to reference and like Todd Klein's blog and all kinds of things, saying you have to fix this. Okay. Like it's fantastic, and I think it's great. You have to fix the lettering, or comics people are gonna notice it. And what's funny is when uh, they sent out the. Preview screeners to to you know journalists and whatnot. Yes. Yep. Um, Kurt Busick, uh, the fantastic comics writer, and a huge fan of Rob Thomas's work. He's an enormous fan of like Veronica Mars and stuff. Uh, was trying to get his hands on a copy, and I tried to get my hands on a copy. I couldn't. I didn't have a copy of this. Sure. But uh, through the social networks, Kurt managed to barter with somebody for a copy Hilarious. of the DVDs. Watched it, raved about it, and he said, "But they need to fix the lettering." Oh, that's great. (laughs) I was like, I know, I know. So if you watch the first, like, four episodes, it starts off where the lettering is all incorrect, and it gets gradually correct. Hilarious. Yeah. Let's turn to uh, one of our many conversations with Brian Bendis from 2015. This one focuses on uh, the Powers TV series. Uh, Powers had its uh, first full season in uh, starting in April of 2015 and uh, has been greenlit for season two. Uh, production is underway. It was underway as uh, we were talking over the summer. And uh, at one portion of this conversation, Brian was just writing. And then uh, by fall, they were already shooting uh, season two of Powers. Big announcements were made. Michael Madsen joining the cast as Super Shock. That was a big announcement at San Diego. And uh, you get a feel for the things they learned from season one and what they're putting into season two. So let's hear from Brian Michael Bendis about Powers, the television series, I should say the streaming television series on Sony PlayStation Network on this portion of Word Balloon. There you so go. Anyway, so yeah, so we, uh, I'm out here. I know we, we derailed again. I'm out here. No, it was all good. What are you talking about? Tangents are welcome. I, uh, I'm out here in L.A. working diligently on the show, part of um, the second season uh, that Sony uh, gave us was they wanted um, a more to be more like the book, you know. And I wanted to know, yeah, go on. Yeah, no, they, they our numbers were very, very good and growing every day, and like you know, the word of mouth was was amazing. And and even though we're not on like mainstream television network, you know, where sure. like we're ratings, like people know our ratings are and all that, but um, uh-huh. you know, millions of people have playstations and. PlayStation Plus accounts and uh, they tuned in. It was cool. So that's cool. Yeah. So they, they, you know, they sat me down and said, "What's our second season?" And I said, "Well, I, here's what it is. It's it's um, uh, who kills Retro Girl. It's it's you know it's the it's it's our best selling graphic novel and and uh, and it's the it's the story that happens to open up the world of powers, which is what the show needs to do now." And it's an excuse to change the visual style of the show just because her death means so much that the world actually can shift visually. And we have an actor in Charlotte Copley who uh, is desperate to go into deep, dark crevices. He does not want to be like a like just a typical lead of a show. And we have a secret weapon in Susan and we have a very good ensemble cast. I mean, they're like really excited, engaged actors. And, uh, so, um, and he, this is exclusive stuff and I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to botch it cause I can't remember everyone's name cause it's not in front of me, but, um, we have some really interesting new hires behind the scenes 
um, our production designer is actually the woman who was the production designer of the shield and invented the barn, uh, uh, which I think is one of the great cop shops of, of all time. Agreed. And, and she actually ended up, uh, she actually went to college with our showrunner, Remy Ubishan and, and, um, they made their student films together and she came in and, uh, and she, she is, she is our production designer. So the sets are going to look very different. Our costume designer this year is, um, Susan and she's, um, uh, um, Joss Whedon's costume designer on Firefly and Buffy and our cinematographer, uh, is the guy who did Torchwood and Banshee. The whole show is going to look different. Um, very bold, very striking. You know, we, um, Ramey's already publicly said, and what we're very engaged in is creating a cinematic version of how Mike directs um, the comic book. So a, a very in-your-face, very colorful, different-looking show. And Understood. Yeah, we're, well, we're very excited about it, to be honest with you. Well, that's the thing, because, I mean, the tone was right, but, yeah, I was thinking about that, in fact, and was watching a couple episodes uh, to prepare for the talk. And, yeah, it's just, I mean, there was nothing wrong with the, it, it was it was right for the setting. You, you'd be in a house or something like that. But Mike is, Mike's backgrounds are, are sometimes more impressionistic. Is, is that yeah. a fair estimation of a direction you guys might go in? Well, I, I guess more with colors than, you know, we're not going to. Okay, like, sure. You know, what, what Mike does is so unique to comics. And I, I guess my philosophy is, the, the 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 comic book has a very bold visual idea behind it, right? It's both in colors and the way Mike draws, and the 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 TV show has to do be a TV show. It can't just be like understood, but it should find its own version of whatever that bold visual signature is, right? Like I want people to see a still of us and go, oh, that's powers. And if, Absolutely, and, and yeah. there's going to be like just like and honestly, Daredevil did it. You you immediately know that. I mean, Daredevil is a very bold, exciting yes. visual show. I happen to know that Jessica Jones is on its own level as well, and um, Power should be in the same boat as that. And Agreed. and and I, I I fully I'm so happy with Sony that they um, in, engaged our 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 desire to hire these people because the, this, these three, these are three gigantic hires that are going to give us what we need. So I'm looking up, uh, the shield, the, the production designer's name to, uh, help us out. Thank you. But yeah, while we, while we do that, I, um, it's kitty kitty. Okay. Cause I'm not in the crew yet, Okay, but I like it. Um, cause yeah, there was a gentleman's name when, uh, when I was looking up, uh, just on Google. So I went to IMDb. See if we can find it. Um, I wondered if, and and was curious if you do look at the other shows that are out there. Obviously, you you do get to see some of this stuff being being uh, part of Marvel too. So just even from a, just like as an observational thing, you know, are you guys watching these other shows and saying, okay, you know, yeah, looking at this, uh, what needs to change for the second season? Are you comparing to other things, or really is it just looking like you said at the comic itself? And like, yeah, that's kind of an aesthetic that's missing. We need to work on that. Oh, and by the way, our, our cinematographer is Christopher Faluna. Um, 
Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I just I blanked for a second. And I I didn't mean to. Um. Um. But, 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 but yeah, but very what what an amazing um, a cinematographer and our and our stunt coordinator is something else too this season. So anyway, no, yeah, no, you know what you do is you look and there's certain shows that are hitting a high watermark, and 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 you and there's other shows that have a, their own look, and then you go, okay, well, we should be either on par with that or have our own look. You know what I mean? So, Understood. Um, and, 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 and to be truthful and, and the, the last half of the powers first season, that look started to find itself. Mm-hmm. Um, like uh, episode six and on, um, a, a new cinematographer came in and started messing with the lights and, and making some choices that, that got much more exciting for me personally. Um, but, uh, it did make me feel like, wow, we can really come out of the gate at season two, like, and really hit the ground running. And there's a lot of shows that have done this. West Wing's done it. Um, The Shield did it. Uh, Buffy did it. Um, Star Trek Next Generation did it. Larry Sanders did it. Seinfeld. And, and, and that that excites me, you know? Oh yeah. So, yeah. So, we have this excellent writer's room. Uh, ben Edlund is actually in the writer's room. There's a bunch of Very excited about room, that. But Ben's someone that comic book people know. Yes. He created the tick. Well, also great TV. Buffy, Angel, Supernatural. Absolutely. You know. And um, uh, Linda McDivney, who was on staff on Homicide, uh, and, and gives me all kinds of homicide gossip. Um, and so we have this really great... Um, uh, group of people with really interesting credits uh, all very dedicated to adding something special to the to the very unique television landscape you know it's, it, things are things have changed dramatically in just a couple of years about how, how people get their TV and how people see it and uh, um, you know what, what so going back to your earlier question yeah you look at the other shows and go all right we have to make sure that our show, uh, serves its purpose in the in this very crowded marketplace, and just like Powers was uh, this other thing as a comic book, where people who know they're superheroes can now get another flavor, which is having them dead. Um, we, no, we, we now we're positioned to do that um, on television now. So, um, and even though we're Sony, it's going to be like this this crazy indie rated R show. I mean, my the episode I'm writing, uh, a, 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 a significant portion of it takes place at a full blown uh, power sex club. The, you know, you're not going to see this on the Flash. It's just not going to happen. So no, that's great. That's what I think. That's the hope. I, you know that yeah. Let's let's go. Uh, let's get edgier and stuff. You're on a different platform. Why not? But the book and it's not even like just being right. weird to be weird. The book is like this. Of course it is. What are you talking about? Everyone remembers some of the fine fucking that you've given us in the book <laughs> over the years. <laughs> and and we have a we have a lead actor who um, spent the summer uh, devouring all of the books. And no kidding. He got to he'd he'd read enough for the first season, but, uh, he decided to read like all 88 issues. And I don't like, and uh, I don't think he was aware of, of the monkey fucking issue. That's what I meant. <laughs> he got there and he, he don't, I, I think he'd heard me and Charlie 
busting each other's balls about it. Like, because Charlie was like, we're never doing that. I go, oh, we're doing it. I go, I go, we get to season five, we're doing it, right? And, uh, and, and, uh, Charlotte was so funny, and he's got this very, and people have heard him, a very thick South African accent. The Absolutely. accent you hear, District Nine, District Nine is, is yeah. his voice, and, and he just like, uh, he's like, uh, we have to do this now. We have to. We have to have the monkeys fucking now. We have to, like skip the retro girl and get right to the fucking. And I'm like, no, it it is a season four or five idea. You can't just go to the you know what I mean. But it was yes, it do. was exciting that he was so excited. Like he wants to do it. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's hilarious. So, no, it no, and truly, that's the ambition. Hopefully, you get to that stuff. You get to see uh, you know Walker as the. Guardian and everything, the, yeah. the galactic, uh, you know. He was very, Charles, he was very excited. There's a chance to get his powers back. He's very, very excited. So, That's um, yeah, no. So it, this is my my. I have a very. It's a very weird summer where I, I split my time between um, Super Daddy and 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 executive producer. I've never had a, really had an office before, and um, uh, yeah. So and we're just you know, but part of the deal with Sony was. That it that it it'd be more like the book, and that I'd be more present in the production. Uh, and I was involved last season, but I w- came and went at at my leisure. And uh, this one was obviously like you know get to work. And and I was I was happy that they were willing to write a big fucking check to make another season of this. So of course I you know I sat down with my wife and I go, I mean this we've been we've been you know we've been aiming for this for years and, yeah, and, you know, and the kids are all off at camp and everything. So it was like, yeah, go do, you know, go do it. We'll figure it out. We have, we figured it out. The kids, the kids are fine. They get to come down here, go swimming. They couldn't be happier. And, um, and, you know, and uh, Sabrina has been saving for an American girl doll for two years. She had no idea awesome. there was an American girl doll store. So I surprised her, took her to the American girl doll store at the Grove, here in LA and wow. it was, yeah, it, it was as exciting for her as Amoeba Records was to Olivia. So I understand. the kids are thrilled and, um, uh, uh, yeah, so it was, it, so it's, it's going smooth right now. We start filming in, uh, the middle of September. Um, I'm writing and producing the second episode and an episode on the back five. Um, but I, I have like the big, uh, budget Buster episode. I have a, I have a very crazy episode um, coming up that that um, Sony liked what they heard. So yeah, we're uh, we're doing good, and it's just a good feeling, you know, working with people that everyone's on the same page, everyone's getting along. It's a good room, and and, and you know, Ben's one of us. You know, when when yes. when he's not, he's just drawing while he's talking, which is what Mike Omi does. And Mike came down a couple of weeks ago and was in the writer's room for a few days and they were like having a draw off. They were just both drawing while they were talking. So. And is Ben just drawing ideas or is he just randomly drawing while he's, you both know, both things you'll, you'll think he's drawing an idea cause he's talking while he's drawing and you think he's going to show you something that illustrates his point And he just draws a giant frog and it had nothing to do with what he <laughs> He's a really interesting guy. Um, Super he, he interesting. Can't... He came on Word Balloon uh, while he was still doing Supernatural a couple of years ago. Ben Blacker helped me uh, arrange for it. And, um, you know, yeah, I, I, I would like to talk to him again. I, are you guys done writing? 
well, oh, done writing enough to start. That's that's how okay. it goes. Like the writing keeps going, and yeah. production uh, starts. So we were we've many scripts in, so we have months of things to shoot. And while those Very- are being shot, the other things are being written. Well, sure, okay. Uh, every, All right. every show's like that. That's not a excellent. A Does it start this month or ne- or next month? Couple weeks. Okay. Yeah, Lily, I uh, go home for. A little over a week, and then off to Atlanta for um, prep work and table reading and all all this other cool stuff and location scouting. And then we 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 start we start filming. And then I wrote the second episode, and uh, so I'll be producing that one myself, uh, which is scary. And, Interesting. Um, yeah, no, uh, Ramey, who's showrunner, has this. He has all the writers produce their own, which is a very good plan. Um, but and it's also good because um, there's so much new, as I talked about um, to you before. There's so much new things going on with the show now that we uh, I want to be there to watch them un- unveil and then slide into my episode. I understand. No, I've uh, you know Loeb would tell me not only on Shield but you know Heroes too how fun it was to really you know get in the nitty gritty of of any any aspect of production that he wanted casting you know, on the sta- on the set or whatever and post whatever whatever was necessary and, you know, how much of an education, obviously, it is. It is, and, 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 and even though I've been involved in other productions, mm-hmm. because of the level of talent behind the scenes, this feels like advanced class to me. This feels like, well, these people really know what they're doing. Are you guys done writing? Well, oh, done writing enough to start. That's, that's how okay. it goes. Like, the writing keeps going. And yeah. production uh, starts, so we were we've many scripts in, so we have months of things to shoot. And while those Very- are being shot, the other things are being written. Well, sure, okay. Uh, every, All right. every show's like that. That's not a excellent. A, Does it start this month or ne- or next month? Couple weeks. Okay. Yeah, Lily, I uh, go home for a little over a week, and then off to Atlanta for um, prep work and table reading and all all this other cool stuff and location scouting and then we, we, we start we start filming and then I wrote the second episode and uh, so I'll be producing that one myself uh, which is scary and interesting um, yeah no uh, Ramey who's showrunner has this he has all the writers produce their own which is a very good plan um, and, but and it's also good because um, there's so much new as I talked about um, to you before, there's so much new things going on with the show now that we, uh, I want to be there to watch them un- unveil and then slide into my episode. I understand. No, I've, uh, you know, Loeb would tell me not only on Shield, but, you know, Heroes too, how fun it was to really, you know, get in the nitty gritty of, of any, any aspect of production that he wanted, casting, you know, on the sta- on the set or whatever, and post whatever, whatever was necessary, and, you know, how much of an education, obviously, it is. It is, and, 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 and even though I've been involved in other productions, mm-hmm. because of the level of talent behind the scenes, this feels like advanced class to me. This feels like, well, these people really know what they're doing. All right, let's turn to Mark Miller, who's having a wonderful 2015. Man, we thought things were great for him when it came to Wanted and the Kick-Ass movies. Well, then Kingsman came out and was really one of the great super spy movies of 2015. Dare I say it was better than Spectre? I'm going to say it. 
And it was certainly as good, if not better, than Man From U.N.C.L.E. I think uh, Kingsman was probably the best uh, of those uh, super spy movies this year. And uh, they're already talking about a sequel. So uh, it's great to get insight from Mark Miller, uh, not only on Kingsman, but, uh, geez, you know, he's got so many uh, of his comics uh, in uh, film production in various stages. And with all this great television adaptations going around, and I also felt specifically with a book like Jupiter's uh, Circle, um, that's a great opportunity to tell a television uh, story versus just, you know, the occasional two-hour movie. So it's nice to not only hear about uh, Mark's success in film and uh, his wonderful collaborations with Matthew Vaughn, they've got the hot hands, but uh, also to hear what he thinks of uh, streaming television versus cable and the like. So uh, this was a great conversation. Uh, Mark came to Chicago for a comic book signing. I went to his hotel, and we sat down in his room for about an hour. Here's a portion of that conversation now on Word Balloon. I wonder, and we talked about this before we started recording, you're, I, I admire the fact that you've got so many different stories. You do your arc and you, and you go away. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a second. What I, what I am curious about, and especially with something like Jupiter's Circle, to me it would seem like that is the kind of thing that would make more sense. Were you to translate it to uh, film or TV, that it would make more sense as a TV show yeah. because of the sub-stories, and you really want that large canvas. And I wonder, because it seems like now... Television yeah. has really become the the, the long form character yeah. study, yeah. and film really is the big splash for two hours yeah. and stuff. You know, two things: Are you able to still tell in your feel, you know, feeling interesting character stories in film? Does television interest you? I mean, do you, when you see what's going on with TV and the longer stories, TV, um, I, I'm a very weary convert to, you know. Like, I'm not a massive television watcher. You know, I'd say since I was 19, I've watched 20 TV shows or something, you know, in all that time. You know, Crazy. Like, it seems nuts. Yeah. Yeah, like, I've, every show everybody talks about, I've never seen it. Right? Okay. <laughs> Except, I mean, I can honestly tell you the ones I've watched, and I have loved them. I've loved The Wire, I love Mad Men, I love Sopranos, I love Lost, Breaking Bad. You know, so th- there's like a handful of genius shows that I absolutely love. Other things, people say to me, you know, buy the box set. You might not like season one, but it gets great by season four. I'm like, I'm not spending that amount of no, time. You no, know? I so, agree. So I, I, I think if they haven't nailed it by episode one or two, I'm gone. You know, I'm out of there. You know, so like, um, so I, and it's funny because one of my projects they were talking about turning into a television show a couple of years back, and I spoke to the the guys at the company, and they said, I said, I feel there's not enough material here to, to run for five seasons, like you're talking about, and they said, Ah, television isn't so much giving you the answer it's about reeling you along every week thinking you're going to get the answer and I was like that's a terrible way yeah to really work. that is you know, it's like I, I kind of hate the idea of that yeah. but sometimes it does work because the slow burn of Mad Men is what made it cool you know, absolutely that's one of the things that, there was almost nothing happens but then in real life almost nothing happens so that's sure. kind of interesting in its own way it's where you just get into the character more than the plot but I, I, I do see some awesome television too. Like I love Daredevil, the Daredevil show. I wanted show. to ask. Okay. I, I, I was obsessed with it. You know, I was binging on it, and like, and I was really busy that week as well. But I still made time to watch Daredevil. <laughs> I loved it so much. Oh yeah. And you know, so so I do see some great stuff, and it does interest me. And there is one of my books that we're almost certainly going to turn into a television show. We've just done the deal, and we'll we'll shoot the pilot and everything. Okay. And um, so I'm so I'm I'm I'm, I'm skeptical of television, but. I see there's enough really talented people in it that it could be good. And I do agree. <coughs> Excuse me. I think Jupiter's Circle actually would lend itself very well to television. And I sort of almost don't want to wait 10 years 
to do a prequel series of movies once we've done the Jupiter's Legacy movies. I kind of, you know, we're, we're going to make the Jupiter's Legacy movies relatively soon. You know? fantastic. Um, and hopefully that'll be maybe two or three movies. Um, and then you would maybe have to wait and do the prequels afterwards. Whereas it would be quite interesting maybe to have a television series that's complementary to it. It couldn't come out before it because the Legacy has to set the standard and the style, you know. Uh, and then the TV guys come in and maybe do a prequel series on television. And I think that, that could be interesting. And we've had those conversations, but there's nothing uh, nothing firm yet. You know? Okay. Um, and you too early to talk about whatever is coming to TV? Uh... Uh, yeah. yeah okay. we, uh, we did the deal, actually, about three or four months ago, but like uh, nothing's gone public yet, you know? So it's actually not that hard to work out because... There's only a couple of things that aren't in the works as films, so you just think, you know, just just uh, have a look at the back catalogue and see. All right, what's going on with it. <laughs> do the math, everybody. We'll all do the math. That's that's fine. I uh, well, and I, and that's the thing because I mean, you know, like Secret Service. Well, and actually, the difference of Secret Service as a film compared to the miniseries and yeah. stuff, which it always works much like Wanted worked, yeah. and and the the little references <coughs> and stuff. Collaborating with Matthew Vaughn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, no, you, that really, congratulations on the two of you finding common ground and, and making such interesting movies and very different movies as well. There's a thread there. Yeah. But but I do think that, yeah, they, they've been they've mm. been great and fun. It's funny, it's a, the, the thread is the loser becoming something awesome, isn't it? I guess in one <laughs> as well. But it's quite interesting. That's, That's a theme in all my stuff. That's true, <laughs> yes, yes. But like... Um, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned Matthew because that's one of the things that puts me off television as well is that, no disrespect to people who work in TV, but somebody like Matthew is a world-class director, you know, who can who can deliver like action scenes, like the, the, the final 25 minutes or something of, of Secret Service. You could never do that as a television show, you know? True. Uh, and then when you work in the budgets as well, like if you think, if you think uh, something like uh, Jupiter's Legacy would be a $200 million movie uh, to make, so that would mean, in, in, in television terms, it would be a hundred million an hour, you know, which would be impossible. I mean, that's never going to happen. So you, you're never going to have directors or writers uh, or actors, you know, at the same level that you can get in cinema. You know, I, so. I, I don't know, man, because Scorsese did Boardwalk Empire, and the Wachowskis and Straczynski, you know, have this. Sense Eight, that is a new show that's on Netflix that just debuted but last week. But inter- I don't know how, how much is an uh, you know like a big television show. What's the budget for? for yeah, one I, I, yeah, I don't know either. But I keep hearing that Netflix is truly. I mean, God, they just bought the rights to a, a Brad Pitt movie and beat up the other studios. That oh no, we'll we'll run it. I mean, that's the thing. It seems like Amazon and Netflix ha- are putting huge yeah. amounts of money. And and yeah, I don't I don't know, man. It just seems like the. And you're right as far as. The spectacular film yeah. that does need over-the-top special effects, but like Daredevil is a great example. Even of. smaller ones, though, you know, like I, I wouldn't name names or anything, but I know that the Hit Girl sequences and Kick-Ass One are so fantastically choreographed, and the guy who does them is a guy called Brad Allen, and you couldn't afford Brad Allen on a television budget. Okay, you know? so okay, yeah, you so something that, okay. I mean, the, the sequence where she runs down the corridor at the end of Kick-Ass One is three three weeks work. Two, two to three weeks work okay. you know? and television couldn't afford to shoot a fight scene for three weeks you know they would shoot it True. a day or two days True. You know? but comparing comparing to the Daredevil stuff and everything I mean look at those elaborate fight scenes that, those that look it, good but I don't think they're as good as Brad Allen well and, and, yeah. and, and certainly yeah more ac- more acrobatics and it's funny I'm only I'm only through episode nine because I'm savoring Daredevil I'm, oh, thinking, really? I'm yeah. taking my sweet time that's wise I wish I'd done that because I was like where's the next one and somebody said oh you've got 14 months to wait I was like what <laughs> that's why exactly yeah, man yeah, you were very you know? wise I was the glutton I was I, the glutton. Yeah, no no <laughs> and, I, well, and I know you know they're making uh, Jessica Jones now. Yeah. So yeah. and I imagine there's going to be some sort of common thread there as well. No, it's interesting because and really, dude, I go back to when 
Wanted was in production, and that was like when Sin City was, you know, coming out and everything, or yeah. around that same time, I don't know, or close enough, yeah. that, you know, it seemed like, oh, Miller's got the hot hand, and now the other Miller's got the hot <laughs> hand, and that's fantastic. I mean, Wanted was 08? 08, yeah. Okay, so in six yeah. years, good God. I mean, this this pile of movies, and, and, I'm, and I'm happy, but yeah, it just seems like... TV, they're all saying, oh, you know, that's that's where you can tell the longer story, the yeah. bigger tapestry. But again, I can appreciate your own tastes, and also the fact that you're still seeing a lot of great, you know, European films. Yeah. The Europeans are still making slick crime movies and great little, you know, tight little action movies and stuff. I think the American stuff is great too, though. You know, I mean, I think we've never lived in a time as good as the last decade. I would say for superhero cinema and things, comic book cinema, it's fantastic. I think at the other end, there's great stuff as well. You know, like there's great comedies, there's great dramas. Television's never been better than it is right now, you know. I mean, the stuff I grew up with was Manimal and Automan and things like that. You know? so, like, <laughs> Me too. So, I mean, I, I love the fact that we have something as good as Daredevil now, you know. But like, uh, but we've got, I don't know. I think it's a multiplication factor almost. That's like uh, there's there's never been as many talented people working in the industry as I think there is right now. It's the same in comics, same in television, same in cinema. It's amazing. Like when, I remember when I was 17, looking forward to seeing Mannequin. Like and Mannequin looks pretty good. <laughs> <you know? laughs> <laughs> and that's, there was maybe three films a year that was actually any good, you know. Well, come on, man. We, I'm going every weekend. I'm going oh, yeah. to cinema every weekend. We were suffer. Well, we were happy to get that Red Brown Captain America movie. Yeah. All those seventies yeah, oh. Marvel movies. No, man. I know. I mean, I was I, I'm only a couple day. years older than you. Yeah, man. Yeah, I was there first day um, for every one of those movies. Like, were uh, they in theaters over over? Oh, by yeah, yeah, Okay, because yeah. they were so, TV but, over here, you know. Oh, we things you got as a TV pilot, we got as cinematic release. Sure, uh, sure. So things like. Um, this Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man. That was to me. That was like Star Wars. It was 1977. You had Star Wars. 1978. There was Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man. You know? Outstanding. I, I, I went to see that four times in the cinema. I went four times. I was obsessed with it. And sure. then somebody said they're making a TV show of this too. And it was only years later I found out. No, that was just an episode of the TV show you were watching in the cinema. You know. Okay, Bendis alluded to uh, some of the uh, Marvel uh, productions like Daredevil and Jessica Jones. Man, Netflix Marvel was certainly as big of a story as the Marvel movies were this year. And uh, you got to congratulate a guy like Jeff Loeb, who I've been rooting for ever since he was made head of Marvel television. Uh, Much like the Marvel movie panels, it seemed like this was great. We're finally getting comic book people in the room making these hard decisions of, no, the show needs to be this. The film needs to be that. And uh, Jeff is a prime example of that. Um, It's great to hear him talk about the strategies behind S.H.I.E.L.D., Agent Carter, and the Netflix shows. At the time, Daredevil had wrapped up. Uh, It had already been well watched. Uh, We uh, we talked back in midsummer. And what I wanted to do was, uh, you know, wait until people had really had a chance to watch Daredevil all the way through. So we talked a lot about that. Jessica Jones hadn't debuted. But uh, he told us as much as he could. Knowing what we know now about Jessica Jones, I think you can fill in a lot of the blanks and uh, see that uh, he really did reveal a lot without spoiling anything. So uh, it's great to get uh, Jeff's point of view on uh, television and streaming television in 2015 in this portion of our Word Balloon Conversation. This is a landmark show. This is a Batman 66-like kind of cultural shift. Maybe not in terms of merchandising and stuff, but at least everyone's kind of taking a step back and going, that's the last thing in the world I would have expected to work in this way, as crazy as Batman was in a parody sense, and as hardcore as Daredevil was. Look, you never set out to do anything in terms of being a game changer or or any of the high praise you just gave us. 
you know, we just set out to tell a story. I, we, we were very clear from the very beginning. Uh, I think you and I actually talked about it before anybody saw it. I, you know, the influences were, were things that we talked about from day one that, that, you know, we were looking at, at the early filmmakers in the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, people like Scorsese and Mean Streets and, and Taxi Driver and, and Billy Friedkin and, yep. uh, and French Connection and, and, uh, Lamette and Serpico. Yeah. Those were the, films that we were looking at and and Phil Abraham uh who directed the first two and really very much set the tone of of where we were going um you know just got it and and I think that speaks a lot to all of the shows that we're doing uh is that you know it it takes that moment at the beginning to to sit with the showrunner to sit with Marvel to sit with the director the the costume designer our casting people uh, you know, and and really talk about what is it that we're trying to reach for, and hope that it works. And and the 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 fun that we've been having of late is that Shield is not like Carter is not like yes. Daredevil is not like when you haven't seen Jessica Jones. I, you know, and and wait till folks get a hold of of Luke Cage. Like that's a whole another show. <laughs> Uh, in, a, in an awesome way, like I like, yeah. I like people are just going to go. I like it. Really does show that the Marvel universe has no boundaries, as as a universe shouldn't. Um, but I, you know, in many ways, I I take our inspiration from the studio because I look at last year and I can't think of two films that were more different than Winter Soldier and Guardians of the Galaxy, and and you know, one was ground, grounded political thriller, and, and the other was, for all intents and purposes, a, a cosmic comedy. And and yet, they both felt Marvel. Uh, mm-hmm. And and I think that's really the place that we're headed to, in as we continue to grow as a television division, which is is not for us to have all of our shows feel like they're the same. And and a lot of that simply comes from the publishing group. I, you know, I think at the end of the day, in in our world of of mass media, where the movies and television get so much attention, we don't remember to go back and thank everyone in the publishing group because it's where it all starts. And mm-hmm. when you look at what's going on, particularly now, um, where you know, Spider-Man and the Avengers, and then there's Howard the Duck, and then there's Ms. Marvel. It's like, you know, again, you look at all of those things and you go, oh, there isn't a definable Marvel comic that you could say, well, I read Marvel because I read this. No, you mm-hmm. read Marvel because you read the entire line. and But it it does have a unifying theme, if if I were to pick one, and that is that what we try to do no matter what is that the stories feel epic, even though they might be small because they're on television, and and that at its core, the hero is aspirational, and that we truly believe that if you put your average person in the worst situation that they can be in, that a hero rises up, and and that's a very different way of thinking than, for example, at at our distinguished competition. You know, like 
I love the Nolan films, and I should because they've been very generous in, in crediting things like Long Halloween and Dark Victory as being you you know, very influential in those films. But, <laughs> yeah, man. But, but when you look at those films, Nolan seems to be saying that that if you break down the system and and you take away justice that you will see the worst come out of mankind that that they'll set up you know trials where they hang people and and where the the disenfranchised will take the 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 franchise and and throw them in the street and and mob mentality will break out um and in marvel you take tony stark who is a a arrogant playboy who clearly has no real understanding as to what his weapons are being used for you strip him of his identity you strip him of his of his wealth you literally tear out his heart and stuff him in a cave and instead of the worst coming out of him iron man arises out of him <laughs> and and that is really for us, the place that we go to, and so if you look for anything as a, as a themery, and I've just used that word, you know, <laughs> Agent, Agent Coulson is 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 murdered by Loki, um, and and given a, a a sort of a ragtag group of individuals, and is determined to bring Shield back to its former glory, and continually sees. It being torn down, and and there's traitors amongst them, and Hydra is there, and and all of those things, and yet he never once flinches from where he's going to go. He is the quintessential Marvel hero. Agent Carter is a woman who is in a in a world where women are told that they are less than men, that her skills are diminished by the people around, that whenever she tries to triumph. Other people take credit for her work, and yet she rises above it and tries to be the best hero that she can be and succeeds. Daredevil is, is, is taking on an impossible task. Everyone around him says that, that Fisk is an unbeatable foe and that even if he does, what will that mean? Even by his own friends. Uh, and, and yet he cannot help but but rise above that in the name of of justice in the name of love in the name of being a hero um and and those are the things that we look for so that no matter whether or not it's it's lighthearted and fun or whether it's dark and uh, and dangerous and noirish um you still get to the end of the story and the hero has triumphed and and I believe that that's what people, particularly now, where where the world changes in a heartbeat, they want to know that there's still hope, and and that's yep. really what it's about at the end of the day. Agreed. And uh, and it is weird because to spend one more moment on the distinguished competition, while they have that, it I don't understand why why it's missing in the movies because. 
I think it's there in the TV shows, and that's the thing. I really think Guggenheim and Berlanti and Kinsberg and all these guys, Kreisberg, have all like really kicked ass and made some really great TV. And Jesus, I saw that Supergirl pilot, and that looks fantastic too. Uh, it's it's interesting that hope and humor and and ultimately the hero you know coming through the tough odds and everything comes through more on television, and the movies still seem to be these downers. And it's like, all right. And they promised us humor on Super Suicide Squad. I hope that's the case. I like the trailers fine. I really do, and I love the Nolan movies. But it is weird. It's weird. It just seems like joy and hope. That's That just seems to be f- way in the background. I don't know. And, and, and look, I, those are choices. They're, they're in the same sure. kind of way that, that you know, not every film you know, can, can feel like Ant-Man. I, you know, it's, Loved it. Uh, Loved it. You know, Absolutely. It's, you, you try and tell the best story you can. And what's fantastic about the Marvel IP is that it, it allows you to continually find different worlds, different theaters, different, and I mean theater, the theaters of, of life, uh, and, and the characters themselves and how they each take on the challenges that are front of them. And, you know, it, for me, it will always go back to, you know, 16-year-old Peter Parker, you know, wants desperately to be liked and mm-hmm. and gets bitten by a radioactive spider. And, uh, and, and instead of getting his wish, has to learn that with great power comes great responsibility. And, and while, you know, in the 50-some-odd years, Spider-Man has had some victories... What what makes Spidey Spidey is that it's that Peter Parker luck that you know even if Spidey has the best day ever then Peter has the worst day ever or even if Peter has the best day ever Spidey has the worst day ever um, mm-hmm. and it just it's something which just is entirely unique out there in in the genre that that we used to call superhero stories and I think now more people are, are referring to as adventure stories which is really where it all came from fair enough a quick uh, spoiler free moment on Ant-Man it was fun to watch what felt like all the different flavors of the screenwriters and filmmakers that have been involved Edgar Wright Adam McKay didn't realize Adam McKay frankly uh, or had forgotten that he was going to be part of the script but that's the thing it, it, as you're saying it felt like a Marvel movie and it really was this example of what you just described as what the comics line is about in terms of there was plenty of adventure. The comedy did stand on its own and it, it worked. And I was really happy about that because it, it worked in a way that as interesting as AI was being part uh, Spielberg and part Kubrick, um, that was an interesting failure to watch. Ant-Man, it just seemed like it all worked. And I hope that – I know it seems to be a slower burn – than uh, what uh, the other Marvel movies have performed at. But it's still, you know, I'm glad it's winning its weekends and everything. And God, I hope word of mouth continues or people will discover it. But I, I think it was a success. Yeah, no, very much so. Can you tell me, because um, you guys have always, you know, Winter Soldier, it was like, eh, you know, if you like uh, Three Days of the Condor, I think you're going to be happy. You know, Daredevil was, like you said, Friedkin, French Connection, and, and, and Mean Streets, and, and, you know, Taxi Driver and stuff in 70s New York. Um, Jessica Jones is slightly different than Daredevil. Is there a movie illusion that you can yeah, tell I mean, us? I, I, again, we're we're the 
the, the film that we always looked at was Chinatown, and, and that shouldn't come as a surprise because Brian's original vision of uh, when, when Brian and Michael Gatos created, Brian Badness and, and Michael Gatos created uh, Jessica Jones, you know, it, it opens with the opening scene from Chinatown. There, it's, it's not even an homage. It's the scene. Uh, oh, that's funny. I'm going to have to reread that. I didn't uh, pick up. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's what, what you do is, is, you know, so much of, 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 of Chinatown is about, you know, Jack Nicholson plays a guy who was a cop, who's something terrible happened to him. And now he has reinvented his life as a private detective, but it, it drags him back into that world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you know, true. it's yeah. Chinatown, Jake. Um, and, and, uh, you know, Jessica Jones, and this I think is the brilliance of what, of what Brian created started with that same concept, which is, you know, a woman who is a superhero, something terrible happens to her and (laughs) sorry. Uh, and she tries to reinvent herself as a private detective and then, and then something happens and, and her world is then turned upside down again. Um, and and that's sort of the beginnings of what it is that we're exploring, uh, and uh, you know, and, and what Christian that's Ritter has achieved, and 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 when people see David Tennant as Kilgrave, it's you know, it it has it's a different kind of of pure joy, uh, as I like to say, as what what Fitzgerald Onofrio brought to Wilson Fisk. Um, yeah, but it, it is it's the kind of storytelling that. Uh, that gets me very excited and the kind of casting that gets me very excited. I, you know, I think Mike Colton, when, when people, you know, get a load of him as Luke Cage, I, you know, they're just going to want to bite their arm off that it's so cool. Um, and, uh, and I don't even know what biting your arm off means. Um, but, uh, you know, and again, just to take my word for it, if you go out, you know, we, we got very lucky because, uh, you know, in the last week, um, we we showed the first two episodes to to Bendis and you know and he took the social media and 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 just gave it you know the most glowing praise in the world and and you know for for Fitzgerald to to like a a a Gatsby movie uh, <laughs> you know I, I think we've we've really achieved something and yes Brian if you're listening to this I just compared you to F. Scott Fitzgerald <laughs> without the booze exactly. <laughs> But still, Zelda's there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's fantastic. You know, I'm talking to him in a couple of days, too, so this is good. I'm, like, making my, my full-on Marvel assault. No, I'm excited for Jessica Jones and really excited for Luke Cage. And, you know, you've been you've been raving about, you know, the casting for a long time now, and that's that's exciting. And also, is that the next series, then, after Jessica Jones, technically? Or yes. The, paper the, 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 no, the, the next one is we go right into Luke Cage. We start Luke Cage this fall. Uh, so start production on Luke Cage this fall. Yes. Wow. Holy uh, shit. And Chao Coker is our showrunner. Uh, Charles Murray uh, is is the number two on that show, and and uh, it's an extraordinary writers' room. And um, uh, you know, there's there's still some uh, some very big announcements that we have coming on that. Uh, but it's uh, it's you know. It'll look Marvel. It'll look like it fits right in with all of those other shows, um, but it, it'll feel differently, you know, in the same kind of way that, that you know, you'll get two episodes into Jessica Jones and you'll go, this is kind of like Daredevil, and then it's nothing like Daredevil. And, and yet, 
I can't stop watching it. And, you know, and, and we've talked about how, you know, we set out to make, uh, you know, a crime. With Daredevil, we set out to make a crime drama first and a superhero show second. With Jessica Jones, we set out to make a psychological thriller first and then a uh, a superhero show second. And Interesting. You know, a, a, a lovely, you know, people will see comparisons to, to films that were made, you know, particularly in the 80s, uh, that were where the female and protagonist is, is put in, a, in, in, a, in jeopardy in a way that, that is not, um, a woman in distress, but in fact, she's the hero of the story. Who's, who has to, as we were talking about at the beginning of this interview, you know, has to rise above her own, uh, foibles, her own, you know, character, uh, inefficiencies. Um, and, and again, if you've read Alias, the, the comic under which uh, Jessica Jones is based, um, we we don't hold back. I mean, I, there's you know she is she is a very damaged woman uh, who, by the end of the series, will have to make some really really hard choices as to how she's going to get out of this mess that she's in. Well, I'm in, I'm intrigued to see Kristen. Is it Kristen or Kirsten? Uh, it's Kristen. I've been a fan ever since she started popping up on uh, that sitcom where she was the bitch in Apartment Two or whatever the hell yes, it was called. Exactly. And everything. But yeah, uh, she. But you know, I, I mean, I think her turn as Jane on 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 Breaking Bad has has a tremendous following. Sure. Um, uh, you know, it really <laughs> is a it's it's a you know as they like to say it's a tour de force. You know, Rachel Taylor who plays Trish Walker, uh, who you know people will know from the comics as Patsy and and what we did. Uh, with that character, I, you know, that's another place where the world has grown. Uh, you know, I mean, who would have thought that, you know, you know, Patsy Walker, the character from from 1950s, you know, romance comics, the, fem- is, the female is, Archie is, knockoff, is, yes, is, is running around, you know, I, you know, as Jessica Jones' <laughs> best friend, um, and and how that's worked out, and and how how her own backstory ties into the rest of the Marvel television universe. And, and, and that's just awesome. I want to talk about Ant-Man and give you guys your props because I thought it was excellent. And it seems like word of mouth is allowing the audience to find it in a way that maybe the other movies that had that big splash at the beginning, like guardians and the ones before it, this one, I think hopefully will continue to grow as the summer continues. Yeah, I do, and I, and I think I think it's a really special movie. It's, it's a lot. It's so much fun, you know. And it just it just it's uh, it's got everything you, you you really want in a summer movie. And then it's something you walk away, you walk out of the movie theater, and and I think fans and 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 non fans walk away and they're smiling. Non fans, of course, going, "Wow, I didn't know there was a guy named Ant Man!" Right? And that's really really cool. Uh, and, and, you know, and again, I think that 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 shows the power of the Marvel brand and and, and the power of our creative teams. Uh, that you know, we we can take something like Ant Man uh, that the world is not necessarily aware of, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 you know, if we do our job right, you know, he becomes a household name. Tell me about because um, I think one of the interesting things, and it, it kind of happened by accident when Edgar Wright left the project. The different creative voices that are involved in this movie, and I think are all represented well, not knowing whose part was which, and I don't necessarily need to know that, but it just seems like right. there's you see Adam. Mc- McKay's influence in the script. You see Paul Rudd's influence. You see Edgar Wright in this. And then also, mm-hmm. it's all wrapped around what has been a very successful Marvel adventure movie formula. 
Yeah, and 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 then I, I think you also have you know uh, characters that, that 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 come to that come to the forefront like like, like Michael Pena's character, yes, uh, which you know all of, all of a sudden you know like wow that that <laughs> he, he he's he's almost a superhero unto himself you know, in a lot of ways, <laughs> and 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 he. He he really sort of ties it together for us and and, and brings a, an amazing humanity to it. Uh, I just you know th- th- those are the, those are the things that you sort of hope happen and 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 really uh, you know you, you can't expect them but you hope them to happen uh, as, as you know the chemistry between between you know actors and and and, and director and writers. Uh, so so we're really thrilled with so much of that. Peyton Reed coming into this movie um, and really you know there there've just been. Uh, things of, you know, movies starting with one director, ending with another. The only comparison I can see, because I really think a lot of what you guys are doing in movies and TV is kind of uncharted waters. The closest thing I can think of are the Bond movies back in the day mm-hmm. when, you know, you had these different directors come in, put their stamps on the movies, but also, again, had to still work within the trappings of what audiences were expecting from a from a James Bond movie experience. And, you know, like you said, Michael Payne is a great example of this great left field character that can come in, mm-hmm. stand out and be effective and stuff. But as someone that is part of the creative process and you're on the Marvel movie panel, can you can you quantify what that's been like, you know, now in 12 movies and watching, you know, these different shifts and, you know, are you able to step back? I mean, is it, it you know, is it hard putting all this together or is it, oh, my God, you know, we're not only getting influences from one creative mind here. Look at the, you know, half dozen people that are, have their fingerprints all over Ant- Man. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think with with anything, I think with any creative process, in particular Marvel, um, it, it's all about collaboration, and, and, and it's all about what what each individual person brings. You know, I, I, I could point to the screen and say, "Oh, that little bit, that was something that I came up with in, in the creative committee," or "That's something that Brian Dennis suggested," or "That's something that Kevin Feige, uh, you know, took and, and sort of turned on its ear and 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 and, and made it work." You know, there, there's all those little bits and pieces, but ultimately, when it's you know, when we, I think when we look at it from Marvel. Uh, you don't really know where it starts and it begins. It just, it just, it just sort of clicks. If it clicks, it's going to work. And at the, really, it's all about story. It's all about story and and and, and getting and keeping true to the character's inherent formula. Uh, and that's really what we strive for. And, and and then looking at each one of these movies as as different within the same superhero genre. As a subgenre, you know, so, so, so Ant Man was basically a heist movie, mm-hmm. you know. So in, in that sense, it's different than Winter Soldier, which is sort of you know espionage and, 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 and action espionage and, and cloak and dagger kind of stuff, and, and Avengers, which is straight out superheroes, you know, balls to the wall kind of sure. stuff. So we we try to look at each one of these properties as as their own sort of subgenre within the genre, and I think that also helps, and, and that's also what where it differentiates from James Bond, where James Bond is, is very much. James Bond, right? And so when a director comes in, they, they have a a reasonable template of what's to, to be expected out of the James Bond movie, and then trying to make it great within there. Uh, at Marvel, yes, there's a template and a formula to a Marvel character, but then, you know, what can you do with it and, and turn it on here and, 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 and look at the genre within the genre? Are you able to then also, when the fin- finished movie comes out, you know, and, it's, and really Guardians, I think, and Ant-Man in particular in the last year, there there just seems to be even more opportunity for comedy. And does it then influence 
what's coming in phase three and phase four and say, well, shit, look what we were able to do with these things. Let's try and, you know, as organically as possible. But, hey, you know, there, here are avenues that, again, maybe didn't occur to you guys until the creative process started. Are you able to look back and go, oh, we want more of that? That was, like you said, Michael Pena, perfect example. Not that you're, like, desperately searching for another Michael Pena, but, you know, like opportunities for a different kind of filmmaking. I think some of that stuff you can plan for. Some of this stuff has to happen organically. But we also, you know, we, we, we understand with our, with our movies that there are certain elements that we think are important to us. Uh, even in our most serious movies, our, our most dramatic movies, uh, I also think that, the, that, that we have to have a, a, a sense of humor as well. You know, mm-hmm. I, and, and I think we, we, those moments are important to us at Marvel and have always been important to us at Marvel. You know, and, sure. and it starts with, you know, Stanley's self-deprecating humor in his in his, in his soapbox. Soap I mean, yeah. All that stuff has been a part of our DNA. And and, and but at the same time, we could also look at properties uh, like Daredevil uh, on Netflix, and we could say, you know what, we're we're going to go darker with this than we ever have. So so you know, we, we break away from the formula a little bit. But even Daredevil has its moments of levity, right? Because absolutely you know, comes in and and says something that just breaks that tension. And I, I think that's important. I, I, I think you have to balance it out. I mean, th- th- we certainly never want to get, at least at this stage in the game, we don't want to do anything that is so dour and glum. Uh, we want people to walk out of our movies or, 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 or when they turn off their television, we want them to feel like not only did they have a, would they experience a great adventure and a great story, but they also want to live in the Marvel Universe, they want you know they they, they want to be here and and, exp- and be a part of it and 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 so, you know I I, I I could live in a New York where the Avengers you know are defending us from alien threats even though there's alien threats it's still a pretty cool world you know so uh, we don't want to be so dark and, and and heavy where people go wow that was intense and I'm so thankful I'm you know that's not my world you know uh, we we always want to keep that sense of it, it's you know this is Marvel this this is your universe and this is this is your world with just a slight tweak. Understood. And, and it's funny, I just spoke to uh, Loeb on uh, Sunday and, you know, heavy, uh-huh. he, yeah, heavy television talk because and I wanted your point of view as well, as we mentioned the Daredevil series and Netflix. Mm-hmm. This is I mean, and uh, uh, critics have said this and all the geeks were all saying this as well. And I'm sure you guys in the, inside the House of Ideas are saying it. This was a game changer. I mean, it really, really was. It was a big gamble, and I think it was to uh, great success. Um, I love the ABC shows as well, but as you say, mm-hmm. the the darkness worked. It did have mo- its moments of levity as well, but it was, in the best uh, sense of the term, adult storytelling going on. And you did it with Daredevil and a guy running around in a superhero costume, and yet... It felt like what you guys were going for, that 70s New York crime movie vibe. It's, like I said, uncharted waters, it seems, for, you know, because there have been other television and uh, superhero shows and movies about superheroes. But just not only the the medium of streaming video, but the the type of programming that you guys put together for Daredevil. And I'm assuming, you know, more to follow with uh, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage and and the like for the for the Netflix stuff. But, yeah, tell me. Now that, you know, the, the season of Daredevil is over and as you're getting ready to premiere Jessica Jones and go into production with Luke Cage, is there a sense of, wow, we did that? Well, hell, if we could do that with Daredevil, did it open up the creative juices even more for these next Netflix projects in particular? Well, the plan has always been the plan. And, and, and again, this is a testimonial to, to Jeff and, and, and his team and, and, and the work that they've done on, on, uh, on our television shows. Uh, 
Um, but but I, I think really in this case, it was a matter of the character dictated what was best. You know, when when we got Daredevil back uh, from Fox, we could have very easily have said, you know, we'll make Daredevil into a major motion picture. But looking at it and, and looking at uh, what might be best for the character and the storytelling of the character. We thought, you know, this, this feels more like episodic TV. It feels, it feels like a superhero procedural because of the, of the legal aspects of, of you know, Matt Murdock. Uh, and also the fact that when Daredevil is at its best, when, when you look at the history of Daredevil comics, when it's truly at its best, it's when it's down and gritty and real world, uh, and, and, you know, it, 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 it's not quite the world of the Avengers. It, it's very strange. As I, as I often tell people, the Avengers are about saving the world. Daredevil is about saving the neighborhood. Yep. Uh, the stakes can still feel the same, even though they may be smaller, uh, be, because of, you know, whatever is important to the people in that neighborhood and, and, and what's threatening them. Uh, so in the case of Daredevil, I think it, it dictated where we needed to go if we wanted to do it right. And then, uh, you know, we had Drew Goddard come on and then, and then Steve Denight as well, yeah. uh, who just had this wonderful vision for the show. And again, the vision of the show was, uh, this is again, what happens when we, when we're looking at making your movies is, you know, the, the character is iconic. It's been around for long, much longer than any of us really yeah. was working on these shows and, and it's not broken. The formula is right there, so let's take that formula and adapt it to the medium, and then and and and, and then tweak it for the modern audience, and 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 that that just sort of dictated where we went. And, and then Drew's, I mean, I've told the story before, but I'll tell it to you. You know, Drew's uh, script for the pilot was so real world, and, and and you could feel New York, and you understood these characters, and uh, and then there was a moment in the script where. And you know the scene if you've seen the show. It's a spoiler warning if you haven't. It's in the first episode. Uh, you know, Foggy and Matter being walked through a possible office space mm-hmm. by, by a realtor. And they're, they're haggling about price. And she said, well, you know, prices are as low as they've been. So you should go you should buy now. Because, you know, ever since the incident, yes. right, meaning when the Avengers said, in the original script, she said, you know, ever since aliens popped through a portal and and, and Everyone, once we, all of us, once we read that moment, we all bumped on it because Drew's script was so grounded in the real world that this mentioning, uh, you know, just blurting out of like aliens popping through a, an interdimensional portal just also shocked the system and like, wait, wait, what am I watching? Right. right. So, so we had to, we had to look at a way of wording it that it felt right within the world. And then, and then slowly but surely starting to ease in the rest of the Marvel Universe. So you'd hear people talk about, you'd hear uh, uh, Wesley talk about, you know, a guy in an armored suit, a guy with a hammer. But all those moments were very carefully selected at, to, to build one upon the other to sort of ease the audience into, oh, shit, you know, the, 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 there's, the Avengers live here. That's right. We forgot right. about that, you know. So, uh, but again, it, it's, we, we had a plan. Uh, and we, we knew that this was something different that we haven't done. And all you can hope for is, you know what? We've got great storytellers. We've got great actors, great, great directors, a great crew, uh, just a great production team all around. All you can hope for is that the fans enjoy it. 
Jeff described uh, Daredevil as kind of an homage to French Connection and, and you know, uh, yeah. Taxi Driver and things like that. And I asked him because Jessica Jones and Alias, the original comic book, kind of occupied that same world as Daredevil's Hell's Kitchen, but in a slightly different way. His movie analogy, without spoiling, he said, think Chinatown. Can you quantify, like, a, a tone for, for Jessica Jones without, without revealing too much? That this was a tough one because because you know I, I think Jeff just named probably the only movie that we can compare it to right now. With I mean like we could compare it to a few other movies, but I think he would give away uh, a okay. little too much of what what makes Jessica Jones different than Daredevil. And the, the only the only thing I could say to that is in the same way that uh, you could look at Captain America: Winter Soldier as sort of a Tom Clancy esque espionage absolutely at the superhero genre. And then you can take Ant-Man and look at it as a heist movie within the superhero genre. Daredevil is very much French Connection and, and Taxi Driver and all those shows and all those movies. And, and Jessica Jones is, again, taking that sort of dark noirish Chinatown uh, concept. But there is another element to it that I, I, I just – if I say it, then it sort of tips off – the okay. difference between the two shows. Right. So I just I just want fans to, to, to watch it and go, wait a minute, oh my god, look at what's happening here. Uh, it, it, it's a it's a it's a wonderful uh, it's another take on the on the genre, which I think is fun. That's great, man. You know that was the beauty of the Max line when it came out. Mm-hmm. You know back in the day, and it leads me to another question that's coming up both in the movies and in uh, Agents of Shield. And it started this mm-hmm. season with the Inhumans. Your own NYX was an opportunity to take the mutants to a more grounded, real place. And um, obviously. You know, there's, there's. Thank you for remembering that book, by the way. It was an awesome book, man. Absolutely, and I know it was only about nine yeah. issues or whatever, and we were bumpy. You got busy, and Josh got busy, and everything, so it got tough to do it. We all understood that, sure. but in, in the long run, I I am interested because I everyone knows Fox has the X Men in movies, and and that obviously maybe presented an, a problem or not to you guys, but I think the Inhumans. The way that the human, the Inhumans are now being portrayed gives you an opportunity to tell a similar set of adventure stories, taking nothing away from the uniqueness of mutant versus inhuman, but also that it allows you the opportunity to tell modern stories in the same way that Brian is doing in Powers, both the comic and the TV show, and really show yeah. the difference between humans and non-humans in this world. And so that's got to be exciting. And I think was an elegant solution to, well, shit, we don't have the mutants anymore. Here are the Inhumans. Well, wait, we can use the Inhumans in this same way. Was that always the plan or was it born out of the necessity of, well, the X-Men aren't coming back to our cinematic or TV worlds anytime soon? Well, you know, I, without revealing too much, the, the one thing I can say is that, you know, we, we've had a list at Marvel. We have a list, an ongoing list at Marvel of properties that we feel are uh, are rich with story potential uh, and, and, and potential in other mediums outside of comic books. And we intend to get to each one of them in their time. The Inhumans was right on that list, very much the same way the Guardians of the Galaxy were, was on that list. You know, uh, I remember meeting, you know, we were meeting about, uh, you know, what, what do we feel are, are potential hot properties and Guardians immediately bubbled. And we said, this, this, this has got something. And I don't want to give you, you know, the other names of that list, but Inhumans was certainly on it. Okay. As are other things that you will see as, as, as you know, as, 
again, everything in its own time. We have to, one thing has to build upon the next. Sure. Uh, but in humans was definitely something that we, we felt was, uh, was ripe with potential. And look, I mean, it, it couldn't make me happier because, you know, so much of this stuff is reminiscent to me of, of, uh, of when me and Jimmy, uh, launched Marvel Knights. I mean, Absolutely. Was, was, was one of those things. We looked at and we go, we said, wow, th- there is so much great stuff here. Uh, all it needs is a little love and care and, uh, and, and see where it, where it goes. Well, that's the thing, Joe, honestly, and I've said this to you before in recent uh, interviews that we've done. I, I just think you've got such a unique vantage point because, like you said, when you and Jimmy Palmiotti started Marvel Knights at a very low point in Marvel's history and you were able to take a group of characters and, and, and teams and say, no, there's good stuff here. We just need to get them in the right hands and the right creative hands, and this stuff can be fantastic again. And out of literally the ashes that a lot of these you know characters had kind of devolved to, you guys put new spins on them or got the right creators to put spins on them from Kevin Smith and Paul Jenkins to, to Jay Lee. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, yourself, obviously, and then you're both writing in and drawing contributions to, to Daredevil and the like. You know, God, uh, Chris Priest's uh, Black Panther. And, I, you know, I'm going to be talking to yeah. Reggie. I'm going to talk to Reggie Hudlin in a couple of days, and I'm, I'm looking forward to oh, cool. all this started back then with Marvel Knights. It must be great. Can you talk about playing this stuff out now on a, on a bigger stage? I mean, it's one thing to put them out in monthly comic books, but, you know, Christ, I mean, you know, several television shows, a couple movies a year. But it's got to be great being ringside and also being one of the guys that was able to, like, flip the lever and go, no, we're going this way and this is going to work. Well, again, you know, I, I, no decisions here are, are, are made uh, single-handedly. You know, it, it is, you know, we, we, we sit and discuss, uh, you know, this, this list I talked to, talk to you about, you know, about mm-hmm. characters and properties that we, that we, we feel we'd like to get to. You know, it's not one man making or one woman making this decision of sure. this is the way it's going to go. Um, it, it is a group of us, and and you know we and some and by the way we, we, we shift gears several times. You know, depending on what what the audience uh, is gravitating to. You know, that because pace change and and the best laid plans, right? Right. Uh, so so you know, it, 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 there's there's always a the wonderful thing about Marvel, this Marvel modern incarnation of Marvel, is that there's there's a, a real strategy in place, and people talk about it's because again, it's not just what properties are great to develop, but are they better to be developed as a major motion picture? Are they better to be developed as television? Uh, you know, where in the world of television should it live? If it is television, all those discussions happen, and 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 we we you know at the end of the day, you still have to cross your fingers and hope that you've made the right decision. And, and we've been very lucky, but at the same time, we don't take for granted the fact that. That you know, we're always going to have this incredible amount of success. It, it would be great if we do. Uh, we're always going to be striving for it, but but I don't think you could ever take it for granted. I know that uh, you know during my my days when I when I ran the publishing division, uh, you know I don't know if I lived like a child of the depression or not, but I always anticipated that you know what it, it, this, this this may not last. Things could happen. The economy could crumble, and nobody could want comics, or you know we could fumble the ball somewhere down the road. So we just got to stay on our toes and stay vigilant. And I mean. That's all we can really do is just continue to try to put out the best stories we can and uh, with the best strategy behind it as well. So uh, we have a great library of characters. There's, you know, I always say that being a creator at Marvel is like being, uh, it's like being a creative trust fund baby. Because you have been, you have been, uh, you're, you're, you're really, you, you, you look, you, it's like looking in the bank and all of a sudden, wow, I got all this money, <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, we, we look at our library, it's like, oh my God, look at all the stuff we have. And not only that, but just stuff that's been sitting around that people forgot about. Uh, you know, people forget that really the, the, the very first successful Marvel movie was Blade. 
right? That's right. Uh, you know, That's we didn't, exactly right. We didn't produce it, but 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 here was a character that that you know wouldn't sell a lick as a comic book. It just it just never caught on. It didn't mean that the character that was there anything wrong with the character. It just meant that you know maybe it was a better property for 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 major motion picture and. You know, it was. It's, it's still a great movie. You know, it still holds up beautifully, and I think defined the whole vampire genre. <laughs> there you go. That'll uh, wrap things up for the part one of the year in review for Word Balloon. And I want, like I said, I wanted this to be the positive show. Um, Word Balloon also addressed uh, some uh, issues that came up in 2015. And uh, I was uh, happy to provide the forum for discussion. And uh, rather than other podcasts that talk amongst themselves. We talked directly to the people that were impacted by some of the decisions uh, made by the publishers and the film companies and the, uh, the like, gender issues, race issues. Uh, a lot of uh, things were kind of, uh, you know, really brought to the forefront this year in a way that uh, maybe we were just kind of heading this direction anyway. And it's good to see that people stepped up and spoke up because I do think their voices are being heard. But uh, a lot of that debate and discussion happened here on Word Balloon. And uh, we'll present the controversial side of 2015 in part two of our year in review. Uh, Also, new uh, interviews on the way as well with Word Balloon. I'm not sitting around uh, just uh, collecting tape. Uh, I've... uh, (laughs) I've spent the holiday weeks uh, talking to some of our favorite creators, and we have new conversations coming up as well in early January. So uh, lots of neat stuff. Thanks for staying around, and uh, thanks for listening to Word Balloon as always. So uh, if you have questions or comments about the show, reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. Or uh, you can uh, ask me questions via uh, Twitter. Uh, my handle is at John Word Balloon or uh, at Facebook. I've got uh, my own uh, Facebook page uh, under John Suntress, and I also have the Word Balloon Network. So if you like Word Balloon, uh, do me a favor and listen through iTunes. Would you write a review and uh, rate the show? I would really appreciate it. Um, I know there are thousands of you out there. I've uh, I've got less than 100 uh, ratings and reviews of Word Balloon. I'd like that number to go up. So if you want to do me a favor, head over to iTunes and write a review. Whether you like the show or not, you tell me the things that suck. That's okay. It doesn't matter. But uh, it's nice to uh, let other people know that haven't discovered Word Balloon yet that uh, this might be a show that they might find interesting. So uh, thanks again. I hope you had a great 2015. Uh, it was an up and down year for me, but I, I would like to focus on the positive as I tried to do in this episode. And uh, just setting up more uh, exciting uh, challenges for myself and for the podcast and the Word Balloon audience for 2016. Uh, there are already people that are lining up to uh, to talk on Word Balloon in the new year and uh, first timers and uh, people that I'm welcoming, welcoming back. But, uh, man, the geek culture is at such an interesting point, and it's a pleasure to observe it with you, to go over some of the questions that you might have, as I have as well, and uh, present them to uh, this audience and hopefully further the, the discussion beyond opinion, but maybe have some knowledge behind the opinion as well. That's what I try to do, my small contribution to the discussion at large. I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode, and I hope you enjoyed the episodes to come. If you want to hear uh, the full interviews of some of the people we had on, they're all sitting at the Word Balloon Archive at wordballoon.com. Just scroll down uh, week by week, month by month, and you will find them going all the way back to 2016 or back to 2006. Uh, you know, our tenth year was uh, 2005, uh, and I've, uh, right now the blog up there only has uh, up to about 2006. But uh, I'm slowly bringing back some of the older shows from the first 15 months of Word Balloon, and uh, certainly uh, this is the home for all the shows that are coming throughout uh, this year and beyond. 
So happy new year. I hope you have a safe one. Be careful out there. Be careful on New Year's Day as well because it's a Friday and I'm sure we're all going to go out and uh, carouse uh, all weekend long. But uh, I want you back for uh, the new episodes. So uh, be safe. And uh, I hope you have a successful 2016. I'm going to do everything I can to do the same. Until next time, happy new year. Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2016.